Tonight, Tom and I are back for a special episode to celebrate the man known as Bill Sobranis on his 100th birthday with a group of people who loved him dearly. We gather tonight in the heart of downtown Petaluma to talk about the man that they called Mr. Petaluma. He was best known for his 49 years of the Petaluma Argus Courier, but also as the founder of the Wrist Wrestling Contest, the Ugly Dog Contest, the Harry Houdini, Halloween Seance, and so much more. He was a self-described peopleologist and claims to have uh, collected over 45,000 photos of himself with presidents, sports figures, movie stars, politicians, and ordinary people, too. He was one of the great characters in the history of Petaluma, and we are thrilled to be joined tonight by our friends Katie Watts, Chris Sampson, Harlan Osborne, Chris Linnell, and John Sheehy to tell Bill stories and to celebrate his legacy. So let's do it. Welcome to the program, everybody. Thank you so much. Welcome. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Tom Gaffey. Jim. Why does Bill Sobranis strike you as such an important Petaluma figure? Uh, well, boy, why is he such? Because for me, he was Petaluma. Uh, uh, he was really the first time I had been welcomed to Petaluma, and it was by Bill Sobranis. Uh, I was about five years old, and my dad and I were maybe I was in downtown Petaluma for the first time ever. My dad and I were on 4th Street looking in the window of the little pet shop that was down there, and Chris came along, or Chris. Now we're... <laughs> We're stuck. Anyway, uh, you know, and he reminds me so That's much. That's a compliment. But I'll Bill came along and, and uh, met us at the market, and my dad introduced me to Bill. And the very next day, I ended up in his uh, article, Tommy Gaffey's first day in downtown Petaluma. And, and uh, from that point on, I felt like I owned a piece of Petaluma. I felt like I had been uh, invited in. And just one meeting with Bill, not to mention the fact that what a guy. Um, I'd never seen anybody like him. I'd never spoken to anybody like him. You had to learn Bill speak in order to have a conversation with him, really. You could have some perfunctory meetings and conversations with him, but did you really understand what he was saying? Uh, you needed to learn the lean in. You needed to slow down what you were hearing in your ears to understand what he was rapid firing to you. And once you got that, Bill was just like this encyclopedia of stories. Uh, when I was a kid working behind the candy counter here at, at the theater, it was the showcase theater in those days, he would, uh, many Sundays, he would find his way uh, towards the uh, late afternoon uh, into our lobby, and he and I would sit in the lobby. We'd be leaning on the counter, and I had to learn how to lean in to understand what he was talking about, and he would tell me the most incredible stories about this town. And... Uh, he was the first one to tell me about uh, Keller. He was the first one to tell me about uh, Charlie Garzoli. He was the one that told me just all of the great Petaluma stories. And uh, he, for me, and I think a lot of people, was our introduction and, and our welcome to this town. And it's uh, when you could understand Bill speak, you knew you were a Petaluman. That, I think, is what part of the... Uh, but everybody's got a different reason for loving and... and, and uh, uh, a Bill Adventures. 
Let's go. Anybody want to jump in? What did that jog? <laughs> Why did we love him? Um, I moved to Petaluma on May 1st, 1981. And on May 3rd, 1981, I called the Argus Courier because my parents had told me that when you move to a new town, you always subscribe to the paper so that you will become a part of the town faster. And the Argus was delivered the first day, and I read a copy of Bill's column. And I cut it out, and I mailed it to my best friend in San Francisco, and I said, can you believe that the local paper is printing something like this? If I ever worked for that paper, I would edit this. In 1994, I went to work. Can we pause? What was it that was so silly to you? Um, it didn't make any sense. It, <laughs> it, was, it was illogical. It was rambling. It was just crazy. And I didn't understand. I had come from San Francisco, the land of Herb Cain. And who was this guy? <laughs> so in 1994, I went to work for the Argus Courier, and I didn't know very much about journalism. I have a degree in drama. And uh, one of the first things that I was told was that I would uh, check out Bell's column. And I thought, oh, good, now's my chance. And I learned immediately that you couldn't edit Bill because then he wouldn't be Bill. And Bill was precious. Even though his writing style was not Herb Cain, even though his writing style was sometimes very strange, it was Bill and he belonged to this town and this town belonged to him. We have Chris Linnell at the table who does a good impersonation. You read his column many times over oh, the years yeah. Yeah. you want to you want to do a little bill uh, like a column like could you just like <laughs> oh well you know if you can talk about doing a column you know you talk about the one that i was first in 1981 i had the same experience that tom gaffey did <clears throat> i moved to petaluma now, is this chris or is this bill i don't know, I don't know. <laughs> this is bill uh, okay. i moved to petaluma and uh, I, I read the paper and i thought i gotta get in that column somehow and uh, so i'm down at the corner of washington and uh, the boulevard and and there he is you know puffing his pipe with his newspapers and his bag over his shoulder and he's ambling down and he's standing there at the uh, crosswalk waiting to cr cross the street and I came up to him and I said I was uh, 18 years old and I said Mr. Sobranus I said I'm Chris Linnell I you know I'm an entertainer I, uh, I, I, I I'm a puppeteer I perform as Crisco the Clown and I said all right write your name down and I'll, I'll write about you in my column so <laughs> Sure enough, there it was, uh, you know, the next column. I, I, and I, I felt, just as Tom did, I felt as though, you know, I was already a part of this town. I was yeah. so excited. It was, it was most exciting. I'd been in the paper before where I grew up, but nothing was like this. This was yeah. different. And um, I, uh, I, I used to see him a lot. I worked at uh, KTOB uh, for four years uh, in the 70s and early 80s. And, um, you know, he would come in to talk to Devoto and uh, Lippman and, you know, about wrist wrestling and so forth. And so I'd see him a lot. But I was at the Argus Courier office one day talking to Martin Brody, who was the managing editor at that time. He was a friend of mine, and I was standing across the counter, and uh, the office staff were all there. They were all listening, and you know, and I was doing Bill. I was talking, and Martin was laughing. Everybody was laughing, and then all of a sudden, Martin started going like this, and I thought, "What the hell?" <laughs> and I turn around, and Bill comes walking in the door, and he comes over, and he says, "What the hell are you trying to do? Take my goddamn job?" <laughs> <laughs> But after that, he recognized, certainly after the uh, tribute dinner uh, that they had for him, uh, what was that, 89? 88. 88. Uh, I, I, I showed up, you know, dressed as Bill, and he recognized uh, it was increasing his celebrity 
that, uh, you know, it made him a more legitimate star. It drew more attention, and I think he finally felt he was getting some respect. I, I, he loved it. And after that, I'd call him up and I'd say, Bill, uh, you know, they want me to be Bill at this thing. You want to come with me? Oh, yeah, yeah, sure, sure, sure. So, I, <laughs> so I'd say, all right, just wear black pants and a white uh, dress shirt, and, uh, and I'll bring everything else. And then I had two, uh, I had this plaid sport coat. I found two identical sport coats at the thrift shop. And <laughs> I had several different outfits put together, and so I'd go over to the house, and, uh, you know, I'd dress him up, and we were costumed identically, and I had a... You know, name tag on that said Bill Sobranis, and he had a name tag on that said Chris Linnell. It said Bill Sobranis, peopleologist, and he said Chris Linnell, impersonator. And we go to these events, you know, and his old buddies, uh, you know, the, uh, I don't know, Art Parent and uh, Tomasini and, you know, all, all the guys that knew him, the, the, the Clover guys, and they, they come up and they, oh, hey, Bill, Bill, here, have a drink, Bill. Uh, hey, Bill, uh, geez, you sound more like Bill than he does, you know, and they, which one he was, Bill? And it was, Bill loved it. He just loved it. <laughs> I love it. Speaking of the Argus, uh, you uh, were the managing editor, Chris Sampson. What did you think of Bill or of uh, Bill Sobranis when you started at the Argus? Well, I started at the Argus in 1975, and uh, as uh, Katie and, and uh, Chris, as Bill, <laughs> uh, were saying, uh, my first impression was, uh, you know, who is this guy? I mean, he, he he came into the office every day. He he wrote his column from home. And he would bring it in typed. And in those days, um, you know, we didn't have computers. We just, we had typewriters. But Bill did not have an office at the Argus. He had a file drawer in this bank of file cabinets. And so he would come in, he would check his mail because his mail would be thrown in there. And this guy, as uh, Tom was saying earlier, you had to, took you a while to understand uh, uh, Bill, uh, Bill speak. And uh, he always had a pipe, and uh, sometimes the, uh, he would forget that it was lighted, and he would send ashes flying around. And, but, so my first impression was, you know, he's kind of a odd duck. Katie Watts recently wrote an article, uh, who was Bill Sobranis and why did he mean so much to Petaluma? And the third uh, paragraph says, in 1997, a new publisher from out of the area, he called one of the employees, the features editor, into the office, and he had a question, who is this guy? And how soon can we get rid of him? <laughs> That's right. It was 1997. This publisher had just come to Petaluma, and uh, he didn't get Bill at all. And he called Diane uh, Reber, who was a features editor at the time, he called Diane and me into his office, and it said exactly what you said. You know, who is this guy, and how soon can we get rid of him? And we were horrified. We said, you know, Bill's a part of Petaluma. He's beloved. He's written this column for umpteen years. You know, you can't fire him. Or there would be an uprising and lots of uh, cancellations of subscriptions. So uh, Bill carried on. There was another incident in 1979. A woman named Lucy somebody wrote a letter to the editor uh, criticizing Bill and saying, you know, this is like an affront to journalism. You know, how can this guy be writing a column? And the outpouring of letters and support, I mean, it filled the letters to the editor page for several days. And the Argus actually wrote a nice editorial uh, supporting uh, Bill and saying how important he was to Petaluma. So, yeah, Bill wrote a column for 49 years, never missed a deadline, but he survived at least two uh, efforts to <laughs> get rid of him. That's great. You know, I think a, a thing about being a Petaluman is you actually are supposed to be an affront to somebody anyway, so Bill was right there with that. <laughs> and John, you're the one who called us all together tonight. Uh, so yes, tell us, tell us, it's his 100th birthday tonight, Bill Sobranis. 
Uh, he's obviously passed away, but I mean, this is this is significant to you. He's significant to you. You've written a whole book on the town of Petaluma, of, and Bill Sobranis is in it. Um, what what do you love about him? Why is he so important to you? Well, you know, I, I think growing up here, he was just the fabric of the town. He was part of the fabric. I never thought about it as a kid. Um, he was a longtime family friend of my family and your family, the ages. Uh, my father and your grandfather, Jim Ages, both went to school with him at St. Vincent's. And um, I was actually featured in his column the day after I was born, which I was um, reminded of recently when, when your grandmother passed away, Topsy Ages, recently. And just before she passed, she sent me an envelope with just that clipping from 1954. And my mother had been in labor for 18 hours at Petaluma General. And the calls coming in to the hospital were overwhelming the hospital, and Bill reported that. And after she finally gave birth about 5 o'clock in the afternoon, there was a champagne party held. About 1 a.m. that night, Bill is out on the beat trying to find stories for his next column the next day. And he runs into your grandfather, Jim Ages who tells him, come and have a glass of champagne, and brings him into the champagne party where everyone's toasting my birth. And that's what appears in the column the next day. I am the news item because he can't find anything else to write about. So uh, the background, I think for me, you know, Petaluma in the 60s growing up here, it was a bit of a circus. We had all kinds of characters here. Everybody had a nickname in town. And Bill was one of the ringmasters. He, along with Ron Walters, who had a morning radio show on KTOB. You tuned into both. I, every morning I got up before I went to school, I listened to Ron Walters. Gave us the news of the day. He called people around town to find out what was going on. You'd read Bill's column. Every day you got home, there was news about people in town. And it's just the way you kept track of things. And they were ringmasters. It was, to me, it was a circus, but I didn't know anything different. And, and that's, it's amazing to me when I look back at Bill, how many memories just are evoked because he captured so much of the feel of the town and the people and, and the way things were changing in town as well, which is very important. Yeah, because you, uh, I mean, how many people at this uh, table have, have written for the Argus? I mean, we have all, you haven't. Wow. You know, uh, I have been appeared in the Argus, but I don't, I'm not a writer for the Argus. But you, your words have appeared in the Argus. Yes, okay. So for fi- free. I, I want to note they don't pay me. <laughs> you know, there, there was the Explorer Scout newspaper. That yes, think- let's talk about that because Tom and I were Explorer Scouts at the Argus Courier, the Argus Courier and yeah. the editor at the time was our troop master. It was a, a Gaines. Um, it was his last name was Gaines. He was a great guy. Ross. Ross. Ross Gaines. Gaines. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Before my time. Yeah, it, it was a couple weeks ago. Yeah. yeah, and I delivered newspapers. I actually just pulled up the article about you uh, in 1954. Oh, no. Mrs. <laughs> yeah. It's not so wacky, you know what I mean? Uh, you know, it's like she, your mother entered the, the, the hospital at 5.15 Tuesday afternoon when John Patrick was born. Things really happened. It seems all of the Sheehy friends decided they wanted to be the first to know when the new baby arrived. So for the next 32 hours, they kept the telephone wires hot with hundreds of phone calls. As soon as the news of the baby's birth was received, these friends threw a big champagne party, and the bottles from this party will be saved and presented to John Patrick when he is a little older. That did not happen. <laughs> <laughs> he goes on, We are willing to bet the Pendleton Hospital has never received so many calls over the birth of a baby as it did in the case of John Patrick Sheehy. <laughs> That's a thing, right? I mean, he would go downtown with his notepad, right, interviewing randoms, and he would write in his 
he would have no pen in his pocket and he'd be writing himself notes to compose his article later. Is that a correct thing? <laughs> yes. <laughs> okay. So he was the, he was a journalist, but like if you're, if you're, if you're a young person, if you, or if you just moved to, to Petaluma, you're like, okay, so he wrote a wacky column that was sometimes kind of fudging the truth. I mean, he, it's important to note that he also was like a big booster of Petaluma. It feels like everything that he did centered around self-promotion and also promotion of Petaluma. Don't wait till tomorrow. Boost Petaluma today. Was that a, was that a quote? <laughs> Join the Boost Petaluma movement. Yes. In all caps. It yes. ended, all caps at the end of every column. In all right. caps. At the end of every column. Join the Boost Petaluma movement today. Be tell a boost. Tell your friends Petaluma. about Petaluma. And, and that was just his movement? I mean, it wasn't an official thing, was he, he it? Just to promote it every single day. Why? Why do we think he felt... I mean, because it's a funny Because he loved thing. Petaluma. He loved he Petaluma. Just, you know what? And if you look at no. where he lived, he lived right in the center of this town. Oh, wait a minute. I, I don't think it's a weird thing at all. Herb Cain loved San Francisco, yep. talked about it all the time. Gayla yep. Barron talked about Santa Rosa all the time. I don't think there's anything yeah. weird at all about a hometown journalist wanting to promote his town. No. Uh, I would just uh, counter weird in today's standards, kind of. Right, because journalism has changed yeah, so well, much. Yeah. So he's, he's, not, he's weird in a different way, a few different ways. Because I, I was thinking about you, John, because I was going to ask about you, you. Your words have appeared, and you are very by the book. You and Tom have very different ideas about storytelling. Tom's good with... I mean, really, Tom, in my opinion, is the, is the spiritual successor to Bill Zabranis. I know that you, makes you very uncomfortable. But well, he certainly looks like it. Tom Gaffey famously says to me all the time, never, he never lets the truth get in the way of a good story. Of course not. <laughs> and, and you're the opposite. Yeah, I footnote my story. Yeah, so. like you know, crazy. Footnote to that, actually. John's mother was... In, according to the story, John's mother was in labor for about 32 two hours and several times during that labor she would say I think he's coming now and he would be saying no I don't think that's exactly correct <laughs> in fact <laughs> uh, well well I, I think going back to what Chris and Nell had said is important because Bill did he was not a journalist I don't think anybody w- would make I, that claim he I, was a columnist and that was different and I disagree. Uh, I Herb, he modeled himself on Herb Cain and Herb Cain established three-dot journalism down in San Francisco, and he, he served a very same function, much like Bill. And the, the whole boosterism, I think, for Bill also bec- was something to do with the time itself. And I, I've talked about this before. Pedalman was going through a major transition, and those of us growing up here didn't realize that. I didn't realize it. Harlan, I don't know if you did, but you know, until we saw the East Side start to explode in the, in the 50s and the 60s, um, this was, a, this was a chicken town and a dairy town. And that's what Bill came out of and, and my parents and your grandparents and whatnot. And suddenly we b- were becoming a suburb. And the chicken and, in, and the dairy industries were both dying off in the 1950s. The dairy industry sort of recovered, but it consolidated. And the chickens were pretty much gone. The downtown was being deserted. And suddenly we have these new shopping malls pulling all the traffic, foot traffic, over to the east side. And we have all these new suburban homes going in. And the town is in an existential crisis, in a sense. It doesn't know what it is anymore. And Bill stepped into that void. And so for me, when I look at what he did over those years of boosting Petaluma, he tried to bring back a sense of excitement. He tried to recap. He tried to hold a sense of the eccentric nature of the town. Um, And that was an important function. I think that's why he's so important. It wasn't just some flashy columnist writing funny stories or something. He really filled a void. And he made those of us who grew up here feel like the town was still a town that had some uniqueness to it, had some of the values we'd grown up with. And then he welcomed new people who came to town. And he was really good about that. He wasn't scared about the future. 
He wasn't scared about change. So, John, that was an interesting statement. Uh, he wasn't flashy, but you know what? And he wasn't flashy, but he did the damn flashiest stuff I'd seen anybody do, for crying out loud. I'd even heard a story about he was uh, some, some friends of mine or some friends of, of my parents were watching Frank Sinatra at Stateline in uh, Tahoe, and they walk into the club, and there's Bill uh, conducting Les Brown's orchestra, for crying out loud. Uh, Bill starts the wrist wrestling championship. Bill comes up with the whiskering. The stuff he did was absolutely flashy, but this was not him attempting to be flashy. This was him attempting to uh, to make Petaluma flashy, I guess. And he did it in, in a very unflashy way. Do, yeah, you, do you agree with that? Um, I think Bill uh, was on the spectrum. Yeah. You know, and I think he had ADHD, and he was highly functioning. He was highly functioning person on the spectrum. And... Um, people I've known, and I've had some good friends like that, they're somewhat addicted to excitement. And that's what really Bill loved, was the excitement. He loved the spotlight. And that's partly why I think he got into the camera. And it wasn't just taking photos of people. It was taking photos of people in the spotlight and then inserting himself in the spotlight with them. (laughs) And he loved being around the excitement. And so I think it became natural for him to start generating excitement. Uh, my father said when they were growing up in, in St. Vincent's, he had a million ideas a day. He was just spewing them all over the place. People couldn't keep up with the guy. So he had, some, he had this entrepreneurial spirit to him and this, this appetite for excitement. And he was kind of hyperactive. He just couldn't sit still. So I don't think he had any choice in what he did. But he manifested himself beautifully in town. He really didn't. And Harlan knows him from being a paper boy over in the east side. And what he came out of over there was a really unique place, you know? I, I moved to Petaluma when I was six years old, 1953. And uh, Margaret Sobranis, his older sister, I think she was 11 years older, was my second grade teacher. Uh, back then, we didn't learn to read till second grade. I think they learn much earlier these days. Started in I, we got the Argus Courier at home, and I, I loved to read the paper. Uh, news stories were way beyond me. I didn't understand news stories. But Bill introduced us to the characters of Petaluma. He jumped. It was easy reading for a kid because he would, he would name names. He would talk about Diamond Jim, Diamond uh, Mike Gillardi. He would talk about the ranchers who went and shot deer and and their escapades. He would talk about events in town and uh, the people, he introduced us to people that we wouldn't have known. I think he did this to a lot of people that didn't have a social life. And I really enjoyed, I read it every single day. I'd read about Desert Dan Delaney, who (laughs) I did, nobody knew who these people were, but Bill, it was Either warm. Bill. <laughs> he admired. He he was always complimentary to people. He never he never uh, criticized anything. Um, I attribute that to to his family. Uh, Margaret was the most gentle person. She never spoke of Bill at school. Ever talked about that's my brother. You know she all she knew everybody was familiar with Bill, uh, but she. she kept that aside I was their paper boy uh, for several years Uh, he was never home of course when I (laughs) but 
we would see him walking when, we're, when we were young, you know, on, on my paper route or uh, when we're kids coming up to the show up here. And he was always friendly. He, was, he never dismissed anybody that I know of. He, he gave you an ear. Uh, we would make up stories to get our name in the paper. We'd say, uh, you know, we're going to have a football game with, uh, with the east side, west side. And, and he ate it up and he'd write our scribble our names down and they'd be misspelled in the paper the next day. <laughs> but he, he, he just enjoyed the life. And I, 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 and I loved to learn about, like I put in my column about him, the who grew the biggest zucchini in Petaluma and <laughs> who, you know, uh, the ladies that, that were the neighbors that he knew. Uh, Margaret was a s- super gentle person. And I, I, going through the archives, I found a story about their mother, Margaret. And the, I, I want to just read a, a couple of sentences that I read about her because I think this is what, how the family became who they were. And she was 70 years old at the time. The Argus Courier wrote this in 1952, before Bill was even a columnist. And I, I, I do want to mention that I, I loved the heading on his column, So They Tell Me, with Bill Sobranis. It just fit for a little kid, So They Tell Me. And it was these brief items. But Margaret Sobranis, they, they, she moved into that house on uh, East Washington, apparently, in 1903. And it was already 40 or 50 years old, the home. And this is just for modern day people to cross from that Starbucks. Is that correct? This, uh, yes. Yes. Yeah, the one that's like right before Whole Foods, uh, right in the kind of the middle of Washington. That's right. Yeah, okay. Uh, that's it's a right. white Gothic house built yes. in the 1860s. At the time, uh, in the 50s, when I was through in the, say, late 50s, there was uh, uh, Margaret Sobranis' family, the Caulfields Meat Market, and Lamar Lawrenson ran the grocery store. Okay. And then there was the East Side Garage and, of course, the Tivoli on the corner. Yeah. And uh, so Margaret, the, the senior Margaret, uh, she mentioned working in the... Uh, the times have changed uh, when she read that, when she was interviewed. And she re- told about working in the starch factory and in the apple cannery and that it was sad that the pickle factory and the tannery were gone. So these, it really was the industrial side of town. And she apparently worked there. She went to St. Vincent's also. Uh, Margaret, we knew, went to Dominican. Somehow we knew that. Apparently Bill would write about her. But later on, when I became a writer, I wanted to do a story on Margaret. And she said, oh, no, 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 I'm, I'm a private person. Now, I wouldn't let Billy write about me, you know. And that's why we never really saw anything about her in the, in the paper. But I, in this story about, about his mother, it said that, uh, that she possesses a calmness and contentment that is enviable in, these high blood pressure, in this high blood pressure age. She believes happiness, to a large extent, must come from the work that one does. People are freer today to choose what they did to make themselves happy. And I think that she imparted that on Bill. To make yourself happy, you don't have to make a living. I can't prove that, but he did what he wanted. He made his life. But he, he opened the doors to these characters. They weren't all characters. They were businessmen. They were all walks of life that kids never would have known by going uptown, you know? 
but we knew everybody was friendly. Everybody, it's, he made us think we knew these people. And I, uh, I, I thrived on that and I learned to read and I, I loved reading that as well as the Argus Courier. They had the old AP stories back then, but they had all the, the local stuff, uh, the city council meetings and the uh, events. And so you talked about a story of when he like went on stage and supposedly conducted Frank Sinatra's orchestra. Yes. I mean, it seems like he was kind of a conductor of people. You know what I mean? It seems like Petaluma was sort of like his venue and he would just sort of like, his column was the place where he would do his, you know, connect this with that and we're going to talk about this. And he, he created characters, he created action so that he could be in the center of the action, it seems like. And in doing so, he kind of built a community where everybody felt like they knew each other. Was that purposeful or was that accidental? John, what do you think? I think a little bit of both. I mean, I, I think he found himself, it, you know, Arlen was talking about where he grew up. And one thing that struck me, um, looking at his background, his father, who ran the shoe factory in town for many years, um, died when he was young. And that was something that happened to my father and happened to your grandfather, Jim Ages, as well. And I look at these young men at the time, and what struck me about all of them is they all grew up in neighborhoods in town where a lot of family members lived on the block. And that was Bill's case with the Caulfield family. He descended from uh, uh, Thomas Caulfield, who ran the stockyards in town. And he had all these cousins living on the block. And his two and uncles as well and his two older uncles tom and will caulfield who took over the stockyard operations there they became his mentors and that was the same for my father on bassett street and my father also became um a, a surrogate son of diamond mike gelardi and so did bill uh, because he ran he ran the swankiest cocktail lounge in town and my father when he got out of the service became one of the the bartenders there uh, known as the chic um and Bill started hanging out there as well. So I think what Bill saw with Diamond Mike is Mike was a conductor. He had a scene. This was where the smart set, as Bill talked about it, he wrote about this for the rest of his life. The smart set met after the war there through the 40s and 50s. And my mother was part of that smart set and that's where she met my father and they married and Bill tried to date my mother and <laughs> drove her up to the top of the you know West Hills there after a movie and dinner and tried to kiss her and she slapped him properly and sent him on his way. But they remain lifelong friends because she was one of his informants as Tom Gaffey was. And he not only didn't make his beat, he had all these informants all over town. And so I think you're exactly spot on. He connected the dots because he'd talk to everybody and he would know that they were giving him news. My mother loved gossip. She had started as a gossip columnist herself when she was younger. So they would get together. We'd sometimes pick up Bill when he was going back to the east side or whatever in the car and he'd get in with his camera bag and his camera and his uh, pipe and whatnot. And the two of them would go at it like I've never, I've never seen anything like it. It was like fast paced, you know, back and forth gossip updates. And he'd keep all that. So. He was, he was a connector in town. I don't know that he was an orchestrator in that sense. In his mind, I think he was, but uh, you know, uh, there are a lot of people who just, uh, you know, like my father, for example, just kind of laughed at him all the time. I mean, it wasn't a serious conductor. You're not like Tom Gaffey. He was the accidental or, uh, conductor. Yes. I never felt that Bill made it about himself, right. ever. Yeah. You'd read about the wrist wrestling tournament and it would always be the contestants. Uh, who were who were who were they? It was very few pronouns. It was about who they were, not and about the event, but not about him creating it. Well, this is the secret. He learned that the more names he put in the column, 
the more readership he got. And he made sure to pack that column yep. with as many names as he could. You know, because everyone went to gossip. I wanted to find out what Jim Ages was up to, and then at lunch, I would tell Chris all about it. <laughs> the did you read that about? To speak to Harlan's <laughs> point, though, Bill didn't refer to himself in the column. He no. only referred to himself as this columnist because in the old days, yes. journalists didn't. It wasn't considered appropriate. The column's not about you. The column is about your subject. Yes. Bill was very careful about that. Well. You want to say he wasn't a journalist, <laughs> and I say no. He. He provided a journal of what was going on in Petaluma. You know, and we, it was not about yes. him, it was about the people in his column. He attended a St. Vincent's reunion, I believe it was, and he put every single name of the who attended that in his column. And in, wives, wow. husbands, there must have been a hundred names. And uh-huh. you did <laughs> there was and they no, all there read were, it. There was everybody. There was no sentences. It was and, just. No. And that's what makes him a journalist. <laughs> yeah. Because if you want to know who went to the event last night, yeah. you look in the column. Yeah. Who played in the were. game? Who went to the party? Yes. Who well, was there? I, I think Chris Sampson might push back a little bit on that. There. Yeah. I. I uh, he wrote for the newspaper. He wrote a column for the newspaper. So I would say he was a columnist. As a, a journalist, he didn't cover the news. He didn't have a beat as far as covering city council or, or crime. But he packed a lot of information about Petaluma. Columnists it, aren't it, journalists. In well, there's a there's a distinction. Sure, there is. Yeah. But in a wider sense of journalism. <laughs> You're talking about three journalists yeah, here, you yeah. know. Okay. <laughs> but but I I I think the thing about Bill is that just he loved meeting people and interesting people, um, and he worked hard at it. He never got rich, but he made his rounds. Uh, I don't know. He worked. He walked like. 16 or 20 miles oh, a yeah. day and he hit all these places uh you know volpe's the hideaway just around town writing names in his notebook like you said but um you know after um i'm not sh- he, he wrote a column for 49 years but at one point he started a feature called my fascinating world of people and every uh, one of those would have a picture of him with somebody fascinating sometimes it would be the time he met the beatles uh, another time it was about these two brothers, the Ham brothers, uh, who their claim to fame was they were heavy drinkers. <laughs> and they looked alike. And uh, one of them like, was th- picked up by police and thrown in the drunk tank. And the bro- other brother went down to the police station and took his place unbeknownst to the police. And one brother came home. So that was one of my favorite uh, fascinating world of, of people columns. But Bill always Infinitely had... Infinitely more interesting than the Beatles, if you ask Yeah, me. yeah. And, and, and like Harlan said, um, his column was very readable because it was short bits, three-dot journalism. There's your journalism word, Chris, like, uh, like Herb Cain did. But, you know, he, there were just like little bits. He would have like a little headline over every bit, every paragraph, like this and that or miscellany or somebody's name. And then he would have these uh, pet phrases like... Um, well, you're getting to be a real old timer if you remember when this shop was located on Kentucky Street. Or um, Chris Linnell is now a member of my Dapper Dan Club. He would list, you know, well-dressed uh, uh, men in town. And then if he wanted an answer to something, he'd say, is there anybody out there in Readerland who can tell me this? So he had these little uh, pet phrases that he used that he sprinkled regularly throughout his columns. Well, okay, I think to Chris's point, though, Chris Linnell's point, it's like when everybody at this table is gone who who interact with Bill Sobranis and all the subjects and stuff, uh, but Bill's columns live on on newspapers.com and they're searchable and all that, they may be the only record of hundreds, if not thousands, of people. 
That's right. You know, I did my uh, my grandmother, uh, Topsy Aegis, just died a couple weeks ago, and she's the last of her generation of ages. So now the family tree is uh, my dad and his sister. And so I was doing a lot of newspaper.com searching and stuff, and I learned so much about the family and the history and just because it's all there. And so, I mean, is that sort of where your point is coming from, that he was a journalist because he, he was documenting people? They may not have been city council members, but where is the line – like what is news? You know what I mean? Is it is news only what are in the city council minutes or is the news like what the guy that owned the restaurant down the street was like, and I'm not disagreeing or agreeing with anybody, but I think that's your point, right? I mean, he was documenting. My point is that journalism is what you make it. And, uh, if journalism is just city council minutes, it's a very limited view. I think journalism is keeping a record of what happens in a town, and part of what happens in a town is who's out drinking with whom and who played in what game and who went to what party. Yes. Uh, I, I think it's the same with uh, Gayla Barron and with uh, uh, Herb Kane, and for that matter with Jack Anderson. Uh, yeah. yeah, well, journalism can be considered sort of an umbrella term, sure. uh, and anybody who writes for a newspaper can be considered a journalist, but you have a columnist, you have an editor, sure. you have a reporter, you have... Sports editor, photographers, they're all under the umbrella of journalists, but specifically sure. he was a columnist, not a reporter. Yeah. I didn't say he yeah, was a reporter. No, no, I know. But I think Bill thought of himself he as a journalist. He dressed like a reporter. Well, well actually, I Chris, I want I to put... I think Bill thought of himself as a journalist, and that's no, the I think. No, he did not. And let me tell you <laughs> I why. Think he thought of himself as a reporter, at least. Wouldn't you say uh, no, Bill, Bill himself defined what he was, and he wrote about this in the columns. And in 1970, he sort of really came out in branding himself. He dropped the name, so they tell me from his column, it simply became Bill Sopranis. And that's when he defined himself as a peopleologist. And part of being a peopleologist, he said, was not being a journalist, because journalists essentially stay behind the camera. They stay out of the story. And yet he liked to get into the story, and he liked to be in the action of the story and reporting from that place. So he made a very clear delineation at that time in what he was doing in the paper, and that's when he, he earmarked the term peopleologist, which he tried to get Webster Dictionary to put into the dictionary, and they refused <laughs> for years. And that went on, that campaign went on for 30 years, I think. Um, but the other thing that strikes me at that time that he also does is um, he turns the action on himself, and that's when he starts my fascinating world of people, too. And in every one of those stories, he's always in the picture with the fascinating person, you know? And that becomes what Bill is. He, and it's part of a new wave of journalism in the 60s and 70s, which is called new journalism. And Tom Wolfe is the epitome of that. Uh, Hunter S. Thompson, who I loved when I was in high school. Tom yeah. and I uh, really... It almost killed us. And Tom yeah. was the editor of our high school newspaper. Yeah. I want to say that. He was my That's editor. Um, but yeah, it, new journalism was the journalist actually puts himself into the story. So Bill was, in a sense, branding himself with this new movement that was going on. He was a new journalist, in a sense. So. Fascinating world. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that. Yeah, then that pretty much makes him a journalist. Yeah, okay. under these new terms, under this new, de his own definition. Yeah, but you know, that was in the 70s, which is no longer new, I must say. Yeah. <laughs> that should be pointed out, yeah. <laughs> but to Jim's original point, I don't think you find many columnists writing like this today. I mean, I, I kind of... Oh. 
<laughs> but you find, but you, but you find like, know, you know, what's interesting though, he was ahead of his time. You find like bloggers writing. Oh yeah, yes. I was gonna say yes, you have to true. include everybody on Facebook, <laughs> TikTok, Twitter. I mean, you know, that's true. He was ahead of his time I mean, in terms uh, of the photos with the people so. and all yes, that. Yes, very much so. <laughs> the selfies. Yes. Well, what, who wrote the story? Uh, Bill might have been the, the the original photo bomber. Was that? Yeah. That, was that Chris? That, no, it's well, it's John's line. I used yeah, it. Yeah, but I okay, think it it's was Kate. used for. Yeah. Maybe yeah. I, I stole it from Chris Sampson, I think. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, no, you had an article how Petaluma Bill Sobranis became the king of photobombing. Uh, actually, there's a, a uh, uh, David Templeton wrote a, a piece last week, but, but I wrote an article, it'll be in this week's Argus, about how Bill um, got those 45,000 photos taken oh, with okay. different people. Okay, oh. I, I got my wires crossed. Okay. Um, well, so, okay, I think there's a lot of very funny stories in those photos, right? The way that he, like, scored the photos with the different people. Could, could we kind of, like, just kind of do an open forum here? Like, what, what was the one where he got in the elevator and got the shot and got the hell out of there? Was and that, that, so here's a story that I'd heard a long time ago, and, and maybe somebody here can tell me if it happened. Uh, Anwar Sadat was in San Francisco, and he was not doing interviews. He was here for business only, and he wasn't going to talk with any newspaper people yet. So the newspaper people were all queued in the lobby of the Fairmont or whatever hotel. Former president of Egypt. For, for okay, the young right. Okay, Anwar, yeah, <laughs> former president of Egypt. And there was a lot going on with that guy at this time. It was, uh, and, and so everybody wanted to talk to him. He wasn't going to talk to anybody. Uh, they're all waiting in the lobby of wherever the hotel was. The elevator comes down, the door opens up, and who's on the elevator with him but Bill Sobranis? Now, that's the story that I heard. Can anybody at this table uh, actually... Has anybody heard that besides yes, me? Yes, actually. Yeah. Anwar told that to me personally. <laughs> I was having coffee with him one day. And he said that. He said that's how I met Bill. Yeah. No, actually, uh, you know, I met... Uh, Bill introduced me to Art Linkletter one day. I took him out to the... Um, what was the name of the... the Pink Elephant in Monterey, or yeah, the Pink Elephant. Pink Elephant, and I don't remember what the event was, but I drove him out there. He wanted to go out there, a uh, Bo- Bohemian Grove, maybe. Yeah, it's right. It may episode. have been a Bohemian yep. Grove gathering. Yeah. In any case, uh, we get there and uh, uh, we go inside, and Art Linkletter's there, and uh, Bill says, oh, "I want you to c- come come here. I want you to meet Art Linkletter." So he comes over and he introduces me to Art Linkletter. Art Linkletter, who arguably could be called a journalist because <laughs> yeah, by the yeah, why, why not same stroke of the pen as bill but art who to me was an icon uh, i mean as a, as a kid growing up i saw him on tv and he was 94 i think and he looked fantastic he looked better than william shatner did when he came out of space who looked really good but he from the second bill introduced me art wouldn't stop talking about bill Bill was the star. Art didn't talk about art. Art didn't talk about, you know, about his time in TV. He was talking about Bill. Bill was the interesting character to Art. Of course, that's kind of what Art's bag was, much like Bill. It's probably why they got along so well. But I was just amazed. Here is Art Linkletter, you know, who I'd seen since I was a kid. And he's talking about Bill Sobranis. I thought this is incredible. If you see Bill in a lot of these photos, it's sort of like the person with him, if it's a famous person, this is sort of just has a deer in the headlights look like. Yeah, yeah. You know, who, who is this guy? Um, I uh, w- was in the newsroom at the Argus when I was on the boulevard. This was in the late 70s, and uh, I was going to go up and cover a speech by Angela Davis, the activist and author at SRJC, and Bill said, oh, can I go along too? So I went up there and I covered it like a reporter. And did you know and, exactly what he was doing? Like, did you know? Well, yeah, he, yeah. he said, he, he, after the, he, I knew he would want to have his picture taken. Were you but, holding the camera? Well, he, 
He always said, here, take two, real quick. Take two. He didn't meet Angela Davis. We, we got to go backstage because we had our press passes. And he, he, he hands me the camera and he goes right next to her. Says, quick. And so she doesn't know who, who he is. But um, She didn't talk to Art Linklin no, at first. No, but around that same time I interviewed Bill, uh, I think this was for, uh, for a 1977 Top of the Bay special edition that the Argus used to do. And he told me how he got his photo with the, the Beatles. Um, they were going to appear, this is 1964, they were going to appear at a concert at the Cow Palace. And they arrived at the airport and the crowd was going wild, as you know, those the Beatles heyday. And uh, they had a, uh, they put up an impromptu uh, fence to keep the crowd out. And Bill heard from somebody that they were going to be staying at the Hilton Hotel. So he gets in a cab, speeds over to the Hilton Hotel. He arrives just as the Beatles are showing up. And the security guard recognizes Bill and lets him walk right in with the Beatles. He goes up to their hotel room, and then he follows them down to the podium where they're giving a press conference. And in that photo, there's the Beatles, and there's Bill on the left just standing there. With a big like, grin on his face. Yeah, yeah. Just, it's like, it's like uh, the uh, photo bombing, like we said before. You've got to tell the Jimmy Carter story. Because so your your article actually got published today, and they they titled it "How Petaluma's Bill Sobranes Became the King of Photobombing." And in that article, you talk about uh, getting the photo with Jimmy Carter, and that is a great story. Yeah, it was the same kind of a deal. Uh, Jimmy Carter was actually campaigning for president. This was uh, 1976, and he came to San Francisco, um, uh, you know, as part of his campaign trip, and. Uh, uh, Bill goes to the airport with a, a lawyer friend named George Davis, who's a who, who knows Carter, and they, the Secret Service say no, you can't get in, but um, but they call their headquarters and they find out. They, I guess they talk to Carter and they find out that uh, your friend George Davis is here with this reporter. Can you we let him in? He says, okay, let him in. So uh, they go in. Bill is able to ride in the in the motorcade to downtown San Francisco. And, you know, has his picture taken with Carter. Hold, they're holding their hands up together in sort of a victory salute. <laughs> and uh, it, it was uh, in that story, I, I uh, quoted an article um, uh, comment that Jimmy Payne made um, to the Press Democrat after Bill died. And he said, it was just incredible. He could get in with anybody. He didn't know, you know. But Bill just had this uncanny knack for being able to... Um, you know, get in the room or get in an elevator with uh, famous people. But in a lot of those 45,000 people were like the Ham Brothers or, <laughs> or just regular people in town. But he, his ability to get these photos taken with, uh, you know, celebrities, Jane Mansfield, five different presidents was amazing. I'd like uh, Chris to elaborate on Bill's uh, habit of putting his arm around people when they so they couldn't crop him out. He'd always have yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, hand there. And, and I, want, I want you to tell your story about why Bill's right arm was always tan. Well, <laughs> uh, he, he wrote a, a piece one time about, uh, he, he rode to Arizona with some friends. Of course, we all knew he didn't drive. So he rode to Arizona, and when he got back, he, he wrote about how his arm was all suntan and sunburned, but just one arm, because it was hanging out the window, and the other arm was pale and white. <laughs> and uh, another item he wrote about uh, going to Santa Rosa, and he spotted 
four dead skunks and two dead <laughs> raccoons. And he says, does that mean there's more skunks out there than raccoons? <laughs> so he was also a scientist. I was, he was the exact same yeah. one. <laughs> That's uh, a journalist. You know, so I want to I know something. We've, we've spoken about the fact that Bill didn't drive, but I distinctly heard you say that he, tried, he drove your mother up to... Yes, the, the top of uh, La Cresta Drive. So, and he came back. He um, in a car? Yes, in a car. <laughs> he, he did drive at one time, and he he graduated from St. Vincent's 1941, and then Pearl Harbor happened six months after he got out of high school, and he joined the I think the National Guard first, and then he joined the Merchant Marine. He was assigned South Pacific and whatnot. He was home on leave. 1944. That's when he met my mother. She was working in Pete Fundus's candy shop behind the soda fountain, which he will he wrote about for the next 50 years is the place where the prettiest girls in town. Even when my mother died four months before him, in her column, in his column the next day was she worked at, at Pete Fundus's candy shop where the prettiest girls in town work. So that's where he met her. Took her on the date, drove her up uh, to the top of La Cresta. She slapped him and probably had him take her home. Two weeks later, he's still home on leave, 1944, and he's got the family car. I don't know if it was his mother Maggie's car or whatever, or his uncle's, and he smashes it in some lady driver on G Street. And after, it totaled the car, and after that, he never drove. And he walked everywhere. He, as Chris, I mean, I've seen different reports. In the early days, they said he walked 20 miles a day. And by the time, I think you came on the scene, you reported 16 miles a day. So he was... <laughs> cutting back <laughs> are there any other good stories about him and the celebrities there were other stories um, about presidents I don't know if this is in your collection about Herbert Hoover former president from the depression days um, Bill went to try to get an interview with him at a gathering in San Francisco and he fell off the platform and Hoover watched this and felt so bad he had he come up to the platform he got the interview out of that okay wow. then there's another time in the 50s he um, he goes with two Panama businessmen to Sacramento to meet with the mayor Goodwin Knight was his name and they're out in the outer office and the secretary puts the intercom on and says um, Governor, the, the party from Petaluma is here, Mr. Barless, Mr. Matson, And then she starts to spell Bill's name. And Mr. S-O-B. <laughs> the governor yells, let Mr. Matson, Mr. Barless, and that S-O-B in here right now. <laughs> He's also known as the man um, who, who fell the hardest for Lauren Bacall. Because when he met her at a press conference in San Francisco, he went up to take her hand, and he fell flat on her face in front of her. And he so, fell flat on his face. His face, right. Yeah. He <laughs> fell on his face. So, um, and I, I, one other thing I, I think we should mention here, his many trips to San Francisco and being in that scene and meeting all these celebrities, that was the only connection we had when I was a kid to, to the big celebrities outside of Petaluma. I mean, that was... He connected us to the national stage, even though it was kind of in a goofy way off in there, just a, a photo bomb. Um, we felt like, hey, we're important. We're connected with what's going on out there. Well, because important to mention that, like, this area wasn't a place where celebrities would come and, like, spend their weekends. You know, I mean, we nowadays it's not uncommon for you to hear, you know, whatever Lady Gaga's in Napa or, you know, Madonna or Kanye was over in Sonoma. This was not that back then. Well, but, with one exception. Yeah. Petaluma Hotel. <laughs> they used to stop. I yeah. Mean, okay. People coming up on Old Redwood Highway from San Francisco north. They right. know this. It was the it was the Bohemian Club too. Yeah. yeah. And so the Redwood 
room in the Petaluma Hotel, which is where the shrubbery is now, which was across the corner from Gilardi's um, corner. Those are the two cocktail lounges. That was, that was uh, really Cocktail Row in Petaluma. And they were well known. People would stop on their way to and from the Bohemian Club. There would be limousines parked, lined up on East Washington Street okay. in the 50s. And that's where people would go in. They'd hear Earl Bond would play in the Oregon and the Redwood Club. They'd be playing dice over at Gilardi's or betting on the horses in the back room. And that was well known among the Hotsi Totsies coming up from San Francisco. Well, he could just go fishing there every weekend then, right? I mean, yeah. to get his photo? Yeah, that's exactly. perfect. <laughs> what about his connection to Harry Houdini, who, by the way, played on this stage so many years ago? I think you have to talk to Tom Gaffey. Yeah, well, well I mean, it's... It, it, well, well uh, as far as Bill's connection, Bill, uh, and I'm not sure when it started, Bill, uh, after, uh, so after Harry Houdini died, he and his wife had set up a message that he would try to impart or she would try to impart, depending on who died. Uh, let's see if seances can really happen. Let's see if we can communicate with the dead. So he left a, a message locked away, and his wife, for 10 years after Houdini's death, were having seances uh, to try and bring him back. And, and they got nothing. Uh, Harry didn't come back. There was probably no money in it. But um, other people decided to carry on the, tra tra the tradition. And I'm not sure when... When did that start? Katie, do you remember when? He no. The Society no. of American Magicians, right? Yeah. Why did the story start, though? Like, why, why did he, like, why? Like, why did he? That's, that's the question. Like, why, why was Bill so interested the in? The Society of American Magicians well, was trying to carry this seance forward because it, it promoted their, their profession. Yeah. And Bill had a lot of friends who were magicians. <laughs> and, uh, really, and I yeah. think Bill saw an opportunity. Yeah. They didn't want to do it anymore, and Bill thought, what the hell? This is another great Petaluma thing. Yeah, yeah. So he said, oh, we're going to have the seance right here. This is the official. He would tell. This is the official Harry Houdini yeah, he, seance. He was calling it Because nobody official. else was doing it. Okay, so it existed so, before him, and he yeah. just kind of took yes. it over. Yes. Yeah. Okay. He's like the Romans. Tom said he it didn't originate out. the things. Yeah. He just uh, glommed yeah. onto them and uh, <laughs> made them yeah. his own. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, that's true. Okay, so that's very much in the vein of the other creation as well. I mean, did he actually invent the wrist wrestling thing or was that somewhere else first? No, but he certainly saw the opportunity. He, yeah. he promoted it from by being at Gilardi's all the time. So it was already going on. Oh, yeah. uh, well, I think they made a big well, deal of staging that first big event, although I think the muscle men were always doing it at the bar. Right. That, that's my understanding was that in uh, he saw people, men wrist wrestling or well, he called it wrist wrestling, arm wrestling, wrist wrestling at the bar at Gilardi's, and then he, he arranged a match between um, Jack, a, a Jack, Jack Homel, who was a, a trainer for the Detroit Tigers baseball team, and a local rancher named Oliver Kohlberg. And uh, it was held in January of 1955, and that was the first wrist, you know, sanctioned or official wrist wrestling match. It wasn't the world uh, championship yet. I don't think that happened until the 60s awesome. but but uh, it was it happened in Gilardi's bar which is where the Bank of America parking lot is right there downtown and it, they they wrestled for um uh 
three minutes and it was a draw. Now I, I double checked. It was 1955. Yeah, it is 55. 55. Yeah. That that well, this, that this is Bill's data, you know. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, but wrist wrestling was a regular Bill betting a game in Gilardi's at the time. Okay. Oh. So and he, so as he, they were he, saying, he saw he saw a thing he that saw he the, could like promote. He saw the excitement of the other patrons at the bar betting on the two contestants. Okay. And he'd known Jack Hummel, hung out at Gilardi's, went off-season to the Detroit Tigers, and he bragged about being able to beat everybody in the world by wrist wrestling. And Kohlberg at the time was also the strongest man. He lived in Lakeville. He was a big 250-pound strongest man in town. So Bill had that idea. But as I said, you know, like my father said, Bill had a 1,000 ideas a day. I mean, <laughs> I mean, he was starting things all the time, but he did sense that. And what surprised him, I think, is after that event in January 1955, there was such an outpouring of excitement. That's all people talked about. And they real him and Diamond Mike Jarlardi and um, and Hummel decided to, to start a regular thing. And it was a benefit for the March of Dimes when it started the first time. It was part of a general sports event that went on every year. I love in Katie's column, you write about it, you say he created and or promoted a wider array of events. D- did, he, did he create much? Like, what, what, what did he create? And I'm not saying that as a criticism to no, him, because it seems no. like there's a, there's a trend here where he's like, you're doing something, I'm going to make it bigly. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Because we're, we always come back to what John said. He wanted to make Petaluma something and he wanted the people of the town to be something right and yeah and the, the real talent is not necessarily creating something the real it's, talent is recognizing something's potential and promoting and, it as such and, and that's what bill was a genius exactly about. bill would see things like the whiskerino contest and the ugly dog contest he'd see things that were happening and think you know this would be a great he could he could visualize how this could make put petaloom on the map and he did it with all each of these events i mean certainly the ugly dog i mean that that's still going on. Yeah. Wrist wrestling has moved out of town, but the Ugly Dog Contest is probably the last remaining Bill Sobranis iconic promotional device that is still here in Petaluma and is still happening today. Whiskerino. Oh, whis- Whiskerino. 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 Whiskerino is on hiatus only because of COVID, yeah. but it will but, come back. But then again, that's uh, kind of all over the world now. It and always was, wrist wasn't wrestling it? moved yeah. to Reno. <laughs> but the Ugly Dog Contest is still a Petalum event, at mm-hmm. least unless we give away the fairgrounds. And I would say to your point, uh, I believe it's one of the few surefire national news stories that comes out of Petaluma <laughs> every year. Exactly. Every yes. year. Uh-huh. I, I almost forget that it's happening here. I live here, yeah. and I'll see it like in the national newspaper, like world's yeah. ugliest dog crowd. <laughs> Just as wrist wrestling was yeah. when yeah. ABC was uh-huh. here. Yeah. Okay. Th- those uh, first years with wrist wrestling was all locals. Yeah. All locals. Yep. Uh, and can't, what... Another event that came out of that was the walkathon from Sonoma, uh, and that yeah. was all locals, and it was big. He promoted that; it, it got such participation. Uh, but he never walked. He never walked. He never arm wrestled. <laughs> they walked from Sonoma to Petaluma every year starting 1956. You know, he, de- he got hundreds of people to walk. He never walked. There he wasn't were, an athlete. He was a journalist. <laughs> he was he was an impresario. <laughs> easy, easy. But, easy. but the weird thing is, he walked that amount of, of, of mileage oh, every did. day. And I, <laughs> he got his steps in. He got his steps in. <laughs> and again, That's ahead correct. of his time. That's part of the BS health kick. Well, I don't think, you know, you know, one story I love about Bill is after he gets back from the Merchant Marine in 47 or whatnot, he... He kind of knocks around trying to find a profession, and he's a hay baler. He's selling and trading hay, and he's working for his uncle Tom Caulfield down at the stockyards uh, as a rodeo kind of roundup guy. 
but he complains that work gets in the way of talking. (laughs) (laughs) This is the problem for him. (laughs) And I I suspect on the walkathon there wasn't enough talking. I mean, you know, it's like he got bored. So he was going to walk for 20 miles with a bunch of people, the same people. I mean, (laughs) I was I was going to note this. This is totally off base, but. Bill and I interviewed the last surviving Egg Day Queen in 1998, 1997-98, and he knew where she lived, and I didn't, and obviously he didn't drive, so I buckled him into his seatbelt in my little car, and off we went, and he wouldn't tell me where we were going, which made it a little difficult, but it was pretty much, well, turn here, so I was <laughs> didn't turn there. Did you go there. up to La Cresta? No. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we we turned on the right on the on the proper street, and he says, "Well, I think 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 I'm gonna 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 I'm gonna have to look at look at my paper here." And he looked at it upside down, and I turned it up, and he said, "Yeah, yeah, it's number 27." And so I. Uh, I turned and I saw that number 27 was on my left. And Bill looked over there and then he looked to the right and he said, I used to come here all the time when I was a kid and it was over here on then. <laughs> <laughs> so I found out from the Egg Day Queen's daughter that Bill had, uh, had one of his friends had lived on that side and he had just gotten confused. <laughs> yeah, who was turned out they didn't move the, the house. The, the Queen was Ruth Shoston West. Uh-huh. Yeah, you know, in the lead up to this thing, I didn't, I didn't realize he did so much more than just the seance, the ugly dog, the oh. whiskerino, the wrist wrestling. I mean, he, he had riverboat rowboat contests. Riverboat he had races. something called the old Adobe Fiesta yeah. table tennis table championship. Tennis. I mean, he was just throwing stuff at the yeah. wall. And don't forget the centennial. I, I would yeah. not. Yeah. I would no. never. Yeah, <laughs> of course. Okay. Yeah, he, the the those columns leading up to. To yes. the centennial were just huge. huge. Boost Petaluma now grow. Isn't that where Whiskerino came yeah, from? Yeah, Whiskerino was the came centennial. Eighteen fifty-eight. Right. Should know too. I want you to finish your point that Whiscarino now takes place in this building every year. Yes, it does. Yes. Oh. The Phoenix yes. Theater. Yes. Uh, which which is, is where it should be. Yeah. I, hey, it, it all should take place. The ugly uh-huh. dog should take place here. Yeah. <laughs> um, but, but he had, a, and then he would spotlight like hundreds of other events as well. I, I just love that he was like a one man one man movement with this boost Petaluma thing. Exactly. I mean, it just seems like he didn't have like, it was not like a nonprofit. It wasn't like, you know, we meet once a month to discuss it. He just was like, this is what we're doing. Let's go. I'm going to use my column to do that. Well, I, you know, I think on that point too, um, this was a town that was predisposed to that. And what Bill looked to as a bottle was Burt Kerrigan, who was brought here by the chamber of commerce in 1917 or whatever to promote the egg basket of the world. That was his term. And he put on all these events, and he did all these things down in San Francisco where he'd take planes and, and drop feathers with little coupons to get a dozen eggs. And he really built the buzz. And the whole town just lived on being the egg basket of the world for so long. We punched above our weight, in a sense. And so we were prone to that. And a lot of people just hungry for that. And that's what Bill fed into naturally right there. Well, and you, uh, who is it? Is it the three of you think that the Kerrigan was actually a scam artist? No, no, because no. I, I've heard I've heard no. him talked about as a guy who who came in and, and tried to sell a thing, but it was maybe he was more concerned with himself than the town. Is that? I think it, the spending was the problem. For spending him. was the problem. Yeah, for him. that's what my understanding he, he, is. He was an Olympic athlete. 
they hired him for the job specifically. Yeah. And he didn't, obviously did a good job of it. Yeah. There was some financial difficulty. Right. And <laughs> As in what? He took too much money? <laughs> he spent too much money. Too much he, money. It just yeah. went crazy. I mean, he was like Bill. I, you know, he just went full out. And okay. that's what Bill saw as a model. And Bill tells a story where he met Kerrigan later, uh, I think in the 50s, and Kerrigan advised him not to put all his eggs in one basket. <laughs> oh <my God. laughs> you know, along, along with the promotions that Bill uh, wrote about, he also wrote about every fraternal organization, the Elks would have their meetings, every reunion, every gathering, every social gathering, fundraisers, they all got publicity through him, whether or not they were on the social page or not. Many of them were, but Bill always added his inflection to, to the Moose Lodge event and yeah. to, and it really made Petaluma feel like a community of involvement. Yeah. You're uh, mentioning uh, uh, Bert Kerrigan, and uh, Bill was the second recipient of the Good Egg Award in Petaluma, sure. and the first recipient was Adair Lara, later Adair uh, Haig, who wrote the book about the history book about Petaluma, and she used the term which I've always loved in the book, describing Petaluma as always being a shameless publicity hound, <laughs> <laughs> because you think of it, you know, the the, the egg basket of the world, uh, Bill Sobranis, ugly dog contest. Mm-hmm. There's just been a lot of promotions, and Bill was an integral part of promoting Petaluma. Yep, exactly. Bert just had one. <laughs> yeah. uh-huh. Bert just did the yeah. egg basket of the world. Right. He put all his oh, eggs in the same basket. Everything yeah, else. He, he yeah. learned the lesson the hard way there. Yeah. <laughs> Bill, Bill listened to, yeah. to Kerrigan. Were you sitting on time? No, I'm fine. Yeah, I mean, it just seemed like he, he that w- this was his like high, connecting with people, uh, b- just being in the center of the action. It seems like he was like addicted to that in, in the best way. And he, and, and he, you know, whether, whatever his situation was, you know, in his, it was autistic or not, or ADHD or not, it just seemed like he found the thing that really turned him on. You know, he had the thing, he found the thing that gave him purpose. And in doing so, uh, here we are talking about him. And I just, I think it's really good. You know, the line about uh, work getting in the way of talking, you know, really, that notion can apply to anybody's line of work. I mean, if you ask Tom Gaffey, what do you think of work? He'd say, work gets in the way of me hanging around the theater. Yeah. If you ask Chris Sampson, what do you think about work? Work, uh, Chris would say, work just gets in the way of my writing. I mean, we all... You know, so I, I don't think it's, it's a criticism of Bill to say that. The fact is that this revealed what Bill's true calling in life was. Yeah. And mm-hmm. let's face it, what Bill did was the best job of doing that that anybody on the planet has ever done yeah. of being Bill. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we need to really honor the person who saw the potential in Bill for that. And she's really been written out of history. There's a lot of rumors that his older <sighs> sister, yes. Margaret... Yep. who was the school teacher over at uh, McKinley and Tom. I was at McKinley yeah. with Tom Gaffey. I, yeah, yeah. I don't think I took Mrs. Uh, S- I had Mrs. Mrs. Sobranis. She was, right. it was, well, so when we were there, she was the first grade teacher. I think when Harlan right. was there, she second, was the second, second grade, grade teacher. I had Mrs. Minton for first grade <laughs> and uh, did not have Mrs. Sobranis. Miss. Miss. Oh, you're right. You're absolutely correct. Miss Sobranis. Yeah, absolutely Okay, but let's clarify. She was not the person who mentored Bill or rewrote his columns or edited them. And the woman who encouraged Bill to go into writing a column for the Petaluma News, which was a a newspaper that only lasted about two years here in Petaluma, um, was his cousin, Nettie Rose Caulfield. 
and she was the daughter of Will Caulfield, who grew up two doors down from Bill. And uh, Nettie was a couple, few years behind Bill in school, but she became a freelance journalist. And she, her first husband, I think, was a rodeo star, and she covered rodeos. She was a horsewoman, and she wrote for, Harlan probably knows this, uh, Hoofs and Hoofs and Horns magazine, and also for the Redwood... Redwood Rancher. Redwood Rancher, and she wrote for Cat Fancy magazine. And her second husband was a motorcycle racer, and she wrote for motorcycle racing magazines. She's the one who encouraged Bill to start the column, because he was running around taking photos of all kinds of people at that time, and she's the one who helped him start the column off in the Petaluma News. And then she was a freelance writer through the 80s, and when he started the wrist wrestling contest, she was really the back uh, office person. Okay, you had Diamond Mike, flashy guy, you had Bill going, uh, but the woman who was a secretary of the wrist wrestling championship was Nettie Rose. And Nettie Rose, I think, is also the one who helped him start writing feature stories in the newspaper. Because before that, as Chris described it, it was three-dot journalism, little snippets of this and that. Um, but then he started writing these features about people. And Nettie was behind that because she wrote for the Argus at times, but she wrote feature stories as a freelance writer. And she died in 86, and right before she died, she was always, Bill always ordered her in his column and whatnot, but she was working on a history of the wrist wrestling championship, which never saw the light of day, sadly enough. But I just want to acknowledge that I recently discovered all this about Nettie, and and it's kind of an unknown influence. He really depended on her quite a bit. Also, uh, Sparky Schultz picked up on the wrist wrestling and made it a national uh, with publicity with peanuts. Oh, yeah. I'm not sure if it oh, was yeah. televised before that or if the television came. I think it came right after that because right I remember up. Snoopy came to town and was disqualified because he had no thumbs <laughs> in that cartoon by Schultz. So yeah. it sold it. Yeah, I think it was 1968, and then the then the, right. the uh, ABC came in '69. I think. Yeah. Was there any sense that he? That, that he was sad about the direction of the town? Was he a positive guy? Emotionally, did he ever open up about where the town went? W- was he universally positive? Did, was, he just, did, was he just not that way? Would he not talk about his feelings? Well, I can, I can start that answer. Some of you who worked with him probably have different points of view. But um, what I saw from him is that um, he liked excitement. He liked the new. And so he loved old Petaluma in many ways. But... The impulse toward the new was stronger for him. So he believed in progress. And part of what went on in the 60s when I was growing up, he was saying, this is all great. The east side is expanding. He, he fought in the 50s to get a second firehouse over on Payran and D Street because the bridges would go up and the fire trucks couldn't get over there. And people mm-hmm. like Harlan's family were moving in in the early 50s because they were starting the development over by Whole Foods. And then the freeway went in. So he believed in progress in that sense. What always amazed me is you get to the mid-60s, and a lot of the things that he cherished in town are being torn down. Gilardi's Bar, which is now yeah. the parking lot of the, the Bank of America. He's seen in a photo there right before they tear it down. And he writes about it, but there's no sadness. It's just like, this is a fact. This is progress. Uh, East Washington Street, where he grew up. That's right. The My God, it's a two-lane street. It's all family homes around him. Suddenly, mid-60s, 67, 68, they widen it to four lanes so people can get across town now because that's the artery to the east side of town which has exploded 
We go from 8,000 people in 1945 in town to 32,000 by Tom, time Tom and I are high school in 72. Yeah, yeah. That, that was a huge explosion. It was. They, they demolished everything on his block. I mean, there are three houses left now. The entire East Petaluma entrance disappeared. Yeah. So his whole other side of the whole other side of the street is blocked out. The corners where he lived are all blocked down. He's still living there. And isn't it weird that his house still stands just the way yeah. it looked when, the day he died? Yeah. yeah. Probably the day he was born. It's eerie. And yet he <laughs> never expressed any sadness about that. It was just like the nature of progress. Mm-hmm. This is what happens. I think this speaks to what we were all talking about before, that he was uh, working on a different plane than the rest of us. I, I don't think he was really that in touch with with this kind of stuff. He was still thinking of the stories. I think you're absolutely right that it was the excitement, and if it was new and it was happening, he wasn't going to be uh, he wasn't going to be a curmudgeon who that's was standing true. against what was happening. Right. Whatever was happening, that's right. where he was going to be was because gonna be. he was a journalist and he f- he told the story of what was going on. And also being a booster was part of that too. Absolutely. It was it was boosting the new. <laughs> you know um, In that vein, by the way, was it was it Bill that said Petaluma's, we, we got a new Taco Bell and Bill's article was that Petaluma's becoming the culinary capital of... <laughs> yes, yes. <laughs> <laughs> now, Tom, you should know because every day in high school, yeah. Tom drove me to the Taco Bell on That's the east true. side, uh, and you had the same you had same lunch Three every day. Tacos, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, you so you it, and, and the beans and cheese. Yeah, yeah. So you followed his advice there. I absolutely did. <laughs> I agreed. John, you mentioned that that Bill followed the society at Gillardi's and the Redwood Room, but he also went to to all the bars. He he, all the time, he mentioned the Yosemite Hotel and Tutan Tony Mausolini yep. that ran it. And, and, and explain where that was, too. That was right on the curve of, it's been straightened a bit now, but on East Washington Street. Uh, at Weller where, Street there. At Weller, where yeah. uh, Cragen is it, or O'Reilly or Auto Parts yeah. is. Uh, Carlo Patoki had the Tivoli across the street yeah. from where Bill lived. His father actually bought the bar for Carlo. He didn't even know he was going to run a bar until one day he came home and said, I, Dad said, I bought this for you. But Bill kept us abreast of, of him, of Ray Wilson at the hideaway. It was always a topic. Uh, uh, Bergie Hergert was a bartender at the hideaway. They all got mentions that Bill, this was society for Bill. He could mingle and say who came in and, and get these stories uh, through through the... The, and Mario, of course, at Mario and John's. And, you know, it wasn't just the, the high, high caliber uh, places. Oh, no. Uh, Merv McCoy was always in, the, in his stories of Petaluma High Life and, and the abalone feeds that Merv would have down there when you could just throw a spread. Uh, and I enjoyed that. I, I, this is where we got to know two-ton Tony Mazzolini. you like, yes. what kind of, I knew him because they were on my paper out also. Um, the area of East Petaluma that got taken down had Kavanaugh Lumber, which, yep. and uh, Stuttart's. Stoddart's uh, Meat Market. Yeah, you know, oh, where you got yeah. a hot dog. Here and you it, go. Had, it had the wooden <laughs> sidewalks still. That's right. You know, oh. just that was history. Yeah. And, and the railroad in there, the San, Petaluma Santa Rosa Railroad Office, and he, yeah. he knew railroad people. He knew. Oh, yeah. You know, uh, and uh, well, he grew up right across from the, the train station. That's right. And in the 30s, when he was coming of age, um, there was a lot of hobos, as they were known at that time. And Bill will make a, a strong distinction: that hobos were not bumps. 
hobos actually work for a living. They just happen to hop the rails all the time. And um, he would praise, when I was growing up, Scissor Sam was a famous hobo who came through town and sharpened knives and, and scissors. And he always came to our house, and he went out back and it kind of ticked off my dad because he had a knife collection. He was really proud of it. My mother would have Scissor Sam sharpen them up, and he was not pleased by that. But she would give him a meal for lunch in exchange for his work. And Bill wrote about Scissor Sam's all the time, and we all accepted Scissor Sam when he was in town. You kind of look forward to, oh, Scissor Sam's here. Later we found out uh, the hobos marked the curb outside your house. <laughs> so they knew who to come and get a meal from for doing whatever, you know, cleaning your yard or whatever. <laughs> who were the soft spots were in town. But he helped, he welcomed us to all kinds of characters that they weren't strange if they just wandered in town. And yes. the, the crazier, the better. <laughs> okay, now, you know, and, and from that segue, um, I would like to know more about did Desert Dan exist or not? First off, I, I know Harlan, but Katie, do you, do you know, uh, can you even, who can give us a, a, uh, an introduction to Desert Dan? Chris? Would that be Chris, is that you? I'll, well, I'll defer to Harlan. Part of Bill's column uh, throughout was my mailbag. He would yes. call it his mailbag, and he would refer to letters that he received. Uh, sometimes they were questions. That many times they were items. And Desert Dan Delaney was one who contributed stories. Uh, you know, I don't recall if, if he went places but it was always items of the... But was, but was he real? That was the question. Well, we never believed that Desert Dan was real. And then just before we started this today, uh, Harlan, you said, yes, that he indeed was. We never knew by reading the column. And I'm not sure Bill knew who Desert Dan was. <laughs> but I met uh, Carol Wilson. Uh, her, last, her married name slips me. Um, oh, Norton. Yes, Norton. Right. Carol Norton, and I've known her for years, and she told me my dad was uh, Desert Dan Delaney uh, several times, and she she says I have, you know, proof of that. Uh, Carl Wilson was her dad. That was Desert Dan, apparently. Uh, they lived on McKenzie over in McDowell Village. He was a prison guard uh, down at San Quentin, and Marjorie Wilson was a clerk for the city of Petaluma. And you may recall, Chris, uh, there were always items, that legal items or notices, and it was Marjorie Wilson that would sign city clerk. So this was, this was Desert Dan. But what, what would Desert Dan do in the column? Like, how, how were we, the audience, introduced to him? Just through items, uh, you know... He wrote entire pieces that Bill published, and a lot of them were very factual-based. Uh, some okay. of them discussed the desert. <laughs> I remember geology. They were they were very unusual for a Bill column. So I mean, so yeah. you're thinking like, so you were thinking maybe this is like a creative writing a thing. He's like yeah, made no, up this I character. No, 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 no way. That's this was like thinking. this was like the difference between Tom Gaffey writing a column oh, as Bill yeah. Suppress and, and John Sheehy sending a letter in as Dan. <laughs> okay, Desert Dan. Yeah, <laughs> Chris, you, you well, probably read a lot. Of yeah, I read a lot. Yeah, of Desert uh, Dan's uh, contributions, and I don't think Bill ever knew who he was. I just uh, as part of this uh, retrospective of Bill for the Argus. Courier, I looked through um, 49 years of Bill's columns on yeah. <laughs> newspapers.com, and I loved it. It was, it was. Uh, there were some hilarious things, but one of them was uh, one column. I think this probably was. I don't remember the year, but uh, it was maybe the 80s or 
1980s, but he said, I just got another uh, letter from the mysterious Desert Dan Delaney. He said his recent letters have, were postmarked from Las Vegas, but this one uh, the, the, and the, last one, uh, the, the most recent ones uh, were postmarked from Palm Springs. So he says, does anyone out there in Readerland know whether Desert Dan has moved? But uh, yeah, they were they were they were just very interesting. He treated, he, treated his, he treated his column like a Facebook status. Yeah, it was. Yeah, I think you're exactly right. He was ahead of his time. Exactly. Yeah. Does anybody know where to get a good plumber? Yeah. Desert Dan also sounds a lot like Deep Throat. Right. Not I mean, as it, not as sexy. Not, they didn't know who he was. After he died, he was revealed by a female relative. Uh, he lived locally. I mean, you know, this is Bill's. Uh, deep, uh, yeah. Deep throat. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I like that. Well, the other thing that Bill did is he was a uh, he had a radio show. And, oh yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> and in the fifties, it started, and he interviewed uh, sports figures largely because that was he was really into sports yeah. quite a bit. And I think that was his his uncle Tom Caulfield who refereed boxing matches when he wasn't running the stockyards, and he also uh, was a rodeo judge and stuff. And that's what Bill. Anyway, Bill fell into boxing. He did a little rodeo work and stuff, but really got in the sports side of it. He wasn't a gambler, though, from what I can tell, like most people who got into that. And he had this show, but he would have local characters on it. One of my favorite, who I got to know as a kid, was named Pop Pickle. Mm -hmm. And Pop was an old woodsman, and he dressed like an old woodsman. And uh, on the first time he had uh, Bill had him on the show, he would ask, apparently ask uh, Pop questions. And Pop was also a bird whistler. And he would respond to the questions with different bird calls <laughs> back to Bill. <laughs> that was the interview. <laughs> we need those clips. Yeah. Somebody out there in Readerland needs to send us those clips yeah. if they have them. Uh, and my mother took me over when I was a little kid to Pop's house. He was living out in Bodega Avenue, the shack at the time. And what a character. And he was whistling all the time we were there. <laughs> So uh, what about behind the scenes? Because a lot of you worked with him or knew him personally. Uh, his column was squeaky clean. It was very positive. But what about like the, the dish? What about the gossip? Was he positive behind the scenes too? Or would he be interested in people's private lives? Because, I mean, he had to have been, right? You know, he would come down on Sunday afternoons. And this, uh, the story always was that he'd, he'd end up at the Phoenix. It was the Showcase Theater in those days. He'd end up at the theater telling me story after he'd found his camera that he had lost the night before somewhere in town. And, and I, don't, I never knew if that was true or not. But you know what? All the stories he told me, uh, I don't think any of them ever had a negative connotation. I think they were always... Uh, they were, he, he was telling the story about somebody that was a hero of his, uh, which is why, to me, all these stories of Petaluma were about my heroes, because uh, he was the first one to turn me on to uh, Petaluma history, uh, him and Ed Mannion, because mm -hmm. uh, Ed lived right up the street, as I recalled, um, but uh, I don't think I'd ever heard Bill say a crossword or a mean word about anybody ever. No. Well, no. and I guess I should expand my question. I don't necessarily mean a mean word. I just mean like, hey, did you no. hear that so-and-so sleeping with so-and-so? No. He would ne okay. never. Well, see, this is not what like, I need. Thank absolutely you. Absolutely <laughs> not. He, he was about as kind and G-rated as you yeah. could get. Now, I know because you told me that in the interview that he told you on more than one occasion, Chris, that um, uh, he did know all the dirt about all the locals. Uh, he told, no, he, he did have negative things to say about some people, but you'd never get him out of him publicly. Yeah. Never. I mean, he, I, I remember we'd be at events, you know, and he'd, 
he'd he'd say, "Oh, that that guy's a crooked son of a bitch." <laughs> <laughs> but it was it was absolutely under his breath. It would never be in his column, and he never said it out loud to anybody that was listening. Yeah, I, I'm sure uh, you know Dave Devoto and uh, Terry Hilton and other people who knew him really Sorry. well would probably attest to this. I, I'm sure he spoke to them the same way. I'm sure I'm not the only one. But it, no, he did that a lot. But. Uh, you know, he was very professional. On some level, how could you not? You know, you do this column. I'm well, just, I just mean like, because I, I think about, I'm trying to like think what life as Bill Sobranus would be like. And it's like his column was his column. But man, he knew probably everything about everybody. You know, and when you know everything about everybody, you want to share it with your people a little bit. You know what I mean? I know that he was a, he was a great man and he was squeaky clean. But, but. Uh, I think, I, I think that he was a gentleman okay. and gentlemen do not do that. Yes. And he didn't dwell on that stuff anyway. No. I he attribute wasn't that. In that. His, what was interesting for him was promoting Petaluma. Yeah. Exactly. He, yeah. he didn't care about the garbage. He was, it was all oh, about... Oh, well, he did dish, though. And there okay. were people... I, there, if you read through his column, as I have done, like Chris Sampson has, there, there are little dishy items there. And it isn't dirt on people necessarily, but people also know he traded information. People knew that they floated things. If you... Jim uh, decided you were going to see if you wanted to run for city council, you would put it in the bill's column. He would write it for you. Say, rumors are that Jim Ages is considering a run for city council. That's how he got Helen Putnam played him like a fiddle. (laughs) 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 And he loved it. She would give him little scraps and he would run it. And he became her biggest booster in her campaign for mayor in 64 and beyond that. She and and so he got access to these people too. So he, you know, it it was an interesting uh, marriage there. Absolutely, Jim. I, it, I, it it may be that I was female, and therefore, you know, you don't say anything mean about anyone to a woman. So uh, you know, it may have been different with guys. One hundred percent. Well, and and like you say, he's a gentleman, yeah, and, exactly. he, and he worked with you as well. Yes. So you uh-huh. three all shook your heads. No. Uh, I mean, you never heard him uh, when when the question was asked. I don't recall him saying a negative thing about yeah. people, but I know you know he did have dirt on people that he could have used, but he just didn't didn't yeah. go there. Yeah. Yeah. I I just recall him always being kind when we were kids, and after reading about his mother, I attribute that kindness to his upbringing. Yeah. His sister was just the nicest lady mm-hmm. you ever yeah. met, and I probably their home life was that way. Except when he went out back in the barn and spent the night. You know, his yeah. mother would lock the boys into that barn. She would actually lock them in. Wow. Of course. Let's zoom in on that. What do you mean he'd go out in the barn and spend well, the they night? Well, a, a, they called it a barn. Uh, they call it a gym. Or, but it is a pretty good-sized barn. It's still there behind the home. Yeah. And they would, well, they had weights back there. And, lift, you know, the Bacleone family would lift weights and the, when they were kids and stuff. Yeah. But Bill... So the clubhouse was what they referred it to. So they wanted to spend the night in the clubhouse, uh, but mom didn't trust them, so she'd lock them in. But <laughs> the boards were loose in the back, Bill. <laughs> <laughs> of course. And so they did their, their pranks, and they're running around or whatever. They, I only heard a couple of stories, you know, like the Halloween pranks and the uh, putting the, the – they took a uh, – a wagon apart and put it on someone's side of their roof or on their garage and 
Of course, the next day they offered they to the, help. Yeah, wagon apart. Okay, so like yeah. the arguably off. that could be vandalism. It could it, be classified. It as could vandalism. be. Yeah. <laughs> but then they would be would help the neighbor take Put it down it the next day, <laughs> yeah. and the neighbors knew who did it. Yeah, yeah. And it was small fries compared so, to the yeah. sort of pranks that used to go on in the 1800s in this town on Halloween. It's, I mean, if you check the yesteryear's column, you're the expert in this, right? Well, I was. I yeah. mean, they used to do really mean spirited stuff, you yeah. know. Yeah. And uh, no, I'm <laughs> And then well and with boxing, uh, I went up on the porch one day to talk to Bill about boxing and I I named some people I knew. I, I don't know if we want to name names, so I won't. Uh, there was always reputations of tough guys, you know. And I would say, "What about uh Joe Smith?" And oh, he was a tough guy. He was he was tough. He was he was really tough. I said, well, "What about uh, Marty? Uh, he was a tough guy. He was a, he was really really tough tough." <laughs> And he had the exact same comments about four different men I had mentioned. <laughs> now, were you a columnist at the time? No, you were no, not. I wasn't. Okay. You were. I was no. He was uh, a paper boy. I was a, a, a aspiring uh, historian. He put me in his column a few times. If I n- mentioned East Petaluma, he knew. Bill liked me early on because I. He knew I loved Margaret. He knew that she was my teacher, and that we had a bond. I have a book at home that Margaret gave me at the end of second grade. It's called Johnny and the Birds. It's a great, uh, that she knew I loved to read then. And she only gave a couple of kids gifts at the end of the school year. And I got this beautiful book. Uh, and I would share that with Bill. And so we, he knew that I admired her. So he liked, you know, we had a, this mutual admiration that way. I really appreciate this little off ramp we just took because we all have public lives and private lives, you know, and I think Bill would share his public life with some and with you, he'd give you a glimpse into some of his, you know, (laughs) his more uh, juicy thoughts on things. Well, you know, know, there's another private side of Bill that hasn't been discussed at all. And that's the Mr. Bill Sobranus, the husband. Yeah. Yes. You know, from the first second I walked into that house, I knew that those two were so much in love with each other. And I recognized that that Jane would do anything for him. She took care of him. She fed him. She bathed him. She never let me take him anywhere without making me promise, don't let him get drunk, keep an eye on him. And he never walked out the door without her saying, Billy. And then he'd go over and he'd kiss her on the lips. I mean, they're too old. You know, she had osteoporosis from years yes. of cortisone because of her yeah. asthma. And, and, you know, he was a mess. And, and yet there was this, uh, I mean, I, I was just amazed. I've been married three times myself. Uh, you know, I've, I've, I'm well aware of marriage is like, but I've never seen a marriage like this before. No. And, you know, when I'd be at events with people and, you know, the old guys, you know, he's a joke. Bill was a joke. I, you know, Bill is, oh, hey, give Bill another drink, you know, big joke. They didn't know what was going on inside his head. What was going on inside his head, number one was he loved his wife. It was an incredible, incredible marriage. They were crazy about each other. They were. And I think that's the most compelling part of Bill there is. Yeah. First time I saw it, I was was just amazed. It, It isn't at all what I expected because I grew up seeing him the way everybody else saw him, you know. And, and then I went to the house, and, and she was just the nicest, sweetest, most wonderful woman in the world. Yeah. She you know what else? And it dawns on me, uh, she took cues from Bill. Was she not the one that started the Better Breathers Club? 
Yes. Yeah. yeah, incredible. And that sounds like such a Bill thing. She was so caring, too. Yeah. Because she knew I had asthma. So I'd come over to the house and she'd say, oh, you know, she'd ask me about it and she'd talk to me about it. I brought my husband over to the house a couple times after Bill died. We, we'd go over and visit with her. And, oh, my God, she was crazy about him. The two of them got along so well. And she'd sit there and talk for hours. She she was just like Bill. She, she was, well... She, She's a better journalist than Bill would have been. That she, she we always assumed that people. she was the one that was editing his, his columns. Well, you know, this is, uh, I mean, I, ke- I kept hearing the same thing, you know, that uh, his sister was writing his columns. And, and no, I think what was happening was uh, Jane yeah. uploaded on the modem. Was that the device yeah. she used? Yeah, at, at one point when we got computers, initially Bill would just type it on his typewriter yeah. and bring it in and we would re-input it. But uh, at one point um, when we got computers, uh, she would... We required all of our colonists to submit their columns uh, online via email. And uh, so she would type his column and uh, for Bill and uh, send it in over the modem. And so I think that's what people were thinking about when they thought that somebody else wrote his column. Yeah. He wrote it. I don't oh, know. Maybe we, yeah. she cleaned up the grammar a little bit. <laughs> but he wrote it, and she just sent it in. Yeah. I, I recall, but uh, I became a stringer in 1979 with the Argus, and I do sports that's what uh what i did and bill would come in into the office and i'm not sure the years in there but he would take his time mingle around shuffle around and be and then i'd go outside and there's jane waiting for him just patiently it was never a timetable i could tell that she was just waiting and whenever he was ready to come out she was there in the car waiting in the for car him. yes incredibly and, patient and i could see that you know yeah. she uh, she never she never judged her husband she never said oh bill zip up your pants or put you she was not like that at all whatever yeah. bill was doing was okay with her yeah. but she was always there for him patiently patiently waiting for him yeah you know. well i think chris sampson found um their first meeting which i didn't know about because they married late in life uh, yeah, that's right. Actually, um, uh, a neighbor of Bill's, uh, Joe Morrow, I, uh, I contacted um, uh, for the series of stories, and he had interviewed Bill um, shortly before he died. I'm not sure how many years. And he actually wrote a piece, which he had, and he shared it with me. And in that piece, he said, when Bill was in the Merchant Marine, um, I know he trained on Catalina Island, um, so I'm not sure if he was there, but he, uh, according to Joe, Joe's story, Bill was on leave. He went to Long Beach. He met this uh, young woman by the roller coaster, and they exchanged just first names, Bill, Jane, not where they lived. And that was probably 1944, something like that. Um, Bill was three, about three and a half years older than Jane. And years later, uh, Jane had been married, got divorced. She moved up to Sonoma County. Now, Joe wrote in his story that she moved to Petaluma, but apparently she moved to Santa Rosa. And um, a mutual friend said, uh, uh, Bill, I want you to meet the new girl in town. And so here they meet, I don't know, 20 years later, uh, just out of pure chance, she moves to Sonoma County, and Bill meets the same girl that he met at the at the by the roller coaster. Did they recognize each other? Apparently so. Yeah, huh. I mean, they, they remembered. I think they remembered each other, and it was. Um, I read this in Jane's obituary that it was a long courtship, 
and they were married in 1964. So I'm not sure how long that courtship was, but um, that was uh, kind of an amazing story about how they, they met years earlier. I'm especially glad that you brought up the, the behind the scenes yeah. look at their, at their life because he was a, seemed to be sort of a chaotic individual, but also a, a man full of energy, a fill, filled with creativity, filled with ideas, and, and that can be kind of messy, you know what I mean? Those are the, oftentimes the people that they need a strong, silent supporter so that they can go and be the fullest version of themselves. So all of this stuff that we're talking about, and obviously it's Bill Sobranis, but, but his wife is, is probably a large part of his success at, as well. Um, because if he didn't have somebody holding it down at home and being a firm foundation, I mean, who knows what his life would have looked like. She forced him to eat. You know, the man <laughs> wouldn't eat. I mean, you guys knew him. And he hardly he ever w- slept. He hardly he ever slept. He wouldn't sleep, eat, or bathe. Uh, if, if, no, I'm sorry. If, if Jane didn't make sure that he did. Yeah. She made sure that he ate. She made sure that he, you know. No, that, that was... We got another 40 years out of Bill because of Jane. Yeah. So oh, probably yeah. true. Yeah, absolutely, yeah. yeah. He was like Einstein, you know, be wandering around talking. I had a college professor, Sonoma State, he was a philosophy professor. And he walked into the room one time, you know, he had the corduroy sport coat with the patches and the, uh, you know, the little the white beard. He looked like a typical college professor. And he came wandering into the class one day, looking just like Bill Sobranis, with a bunch of books like this. And he comes wandering in, and he stood there and he looked up at the lecture hall that was filled with his students, and he said, Is this my class? <laughs> Yeah. Yes. Oh, all right. So they sat down to the lecture. It's the same thing. That wasn't Debrachi, was it? Debrach was that Phil a professor named? Okay. Name. Yeah, I had a, I had a philosophy instructor just like that. Oh, actually, you? yeah. Phil Timko? No, no he was uh, Debrachi was his name, and but he would walk so, in. So Bill Sobranis. Yeah. Is it's all going on up here, and yep. he's not aware, you know, that there's a world around him. <laughs> Jane was the world that uh, yeah held on to him, made sure that he yeah. did what he had to do. Well, before we wind down, is there any? Big Bill Sobranis thing that we haven't touched on. Any any part of his personality, his life. I'd like to mention that uh, going through his files, he always referred to his files, and he knew he had recollections of everything at his home files. And uh, when he <laughs> passed away, I got to, I, with the museum uh, group, I went through his basement uh, in the house next door to the, to the, uh, to the form, you know, his home house. And his files consisted of cardboard boxes that had been just items cluttered on a table, picked up at the corners, and dropped into these boxes. Yeah. And there was there was it was fun for me because I could see there was no order. There was no he did he knew he had these items somewhere, but he didn't know he didn't know where they were anymore. That that it, and it was so we had uh, column. Uh, issues of redwood rancher mixed in with really nice photographs of of celebrities and people and and uh negatives everything was just in there uh, and so what's happened to all that now well they myself and and the people from the museum they a lot of it was was soiled and dirty from uh, being in there so long and the rats would chew into some of the boxes so we took away whatever was preservable and the family uh, kept that. They, I think the family had an idea that they were going to open up Bill Sobranis, if not museum, but some kind of showcase with their, they thought it was valuable. I, uh, this is only my own interpretation, uh, that they might be able to charge for that or something. Okay. I talked to uh, 
one of Bill's nieces, and she kind of, um, I, I had mentioned that because I'd heard that from you, and she said, oh, that was never going to happen. But um, but it was a, it was a very it, Bill Sopranos-like yeah, idea. Yeah, exactly. It was. <laughs> but but uh, an, another niece uh, allowed me uh, to um, go through uh, some of Bill's scrapbooks that, that uh, she has at her house, and I took photos of uh, several things. I, I don't know if the uh, 45,000 photos um, still exist. I, I went to the museum, and they have several Bill um, files there. And uh, during this process, I know uh, Harlan and Katie and some of the rest of us have um, gathered a lot of Bill's photos. And um, one thing um, that happened uh, after Bill died is uh, the late Bill Hammerman, who was a, called himself a volunteer cybernaut, he, he set up Petaluma's first community webpage. He's a reti- he was a retired um, um, college uh, professor. And um, he and some volunteers created a Bill Sobranus website. And they had volunteers type in all of Bill's fascinating world of people columns with the photos. And it was online, and it was linked to the Argus Courier website for a couple of years. And then the Argus Courier website changed platforms a couple of times. It disappeared. Um, uh, but I... Ha- I, I uh, tracked down one of the people that helped Bill put put that on, uh, on online, and he th- thought he still had it. But then I found uh, a CD with that website at wow. the museum, and they allowed me to copy it. So I'm hoping that somehow we can get that back online, all this fascinating world of people columns. And the other thing I've talked to Katie about is um, sometime next couple of months we'd like to uh, create a Wikipedia page for Bill and um, we certainly have some good material to start with. Uh, we, can put, we can link to this podcast. We can put some of our recent uh, our Argus Courier stories about Bill on there. And uh, so hopefully those things can come to fruition. You know, you mentioned 45,000 photographs, and I've always heard, but I never had actually had it confirmed, was Bill in the Guinness Book of World Records for having, the most, having his photograph uh, with the most people in the world? Is Not that to true? My knowledge. Not to my knowledge. Oh. See, I had heard that he had made the Guinness Book of World Records. I don't know well. who, who heard that from Bill, no doubt. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, yes, that's probably true. They have a formal submission. Yes, policy. they do. <laughs> I, I would like to add that uh, I believe upstairs where, where he, he and Jane lived, they had he had a more organized file cabinet of photographs, and I don't know how many or how how well it was organized, but. We kind of had the, uh, the... The down and dirty stuff? <laughs> the, you know, the, the discarded thing. But there were some organization there. I don't want to create an idea that he was all haphazard. No, but I mean, you know, I mentioned my, my... Well, sure, and that's okay. But you know what? Hey, even, even people who are much more together than him, that's how people often keep their archives. I that's mean, like I've been go, I'm going through uh, my grandmother's uh, photos and things, and it's, it's a treasure trove. You'll get that's a box, right. and you see, like, uh, you know, my dad's high school graduation photo, and then you see a picture from a wedding in 1996, and then you see something from 2017, and now we're back in 1960 again. I mean, that must have been a thrill for you to it go was, through those documents. It took us forever because we would look at this, look at this, and pull up these items we found the nicest photograph i've ever seen of the petaluma train depot taken several years after it was built probably from the top of the tivoli hotel mm. and i would well, I, for you that's probably more valuable uh, than finding I've, you know a piece of gold in it there. was it was and i would love to see that or have have it available to, uh, 
somehow. And I, I imagine the family has it. It would be something if you guys do the work on the Wikipedia or whatever form it makes it up that at some point to like do a book of some kind, you know what I mean? If a group of people came together, somebody with some money, somebody with some like artistic design background, somebody with a lot of time who wants to <laughs> curate it. I mean, cause there is a life here that could be a coffee table book. Oh, absolutely. And there are, <laughs> there's at least seven people I know that would like it and maybe would, maybe would buy it. <laughs> John Sheehy, do you want to mention, you wrote a wonderful piece about your reminiscences of Bill on your your history blog do you want to mention that anything in particular or we've talked about, <laughs> about bill about the people who want to read it well i was you can process that i was going to ask from that same column about your last uh meeting with him the last few years of his life the last few months of his life um yeah i can speak to that a little bit i you know one thing we were talking about in 1970 bill branding himself as a peopleologist and changed his column name to Bill Sobranus rather than So They Tell Me. And that was a shift, you know. And um, what I noticed in reading the back issues, and maybe Chris did too, is that in the 70s, he begins, uh, my fascinating world of people, he begins writing more about nostalgia and history. And that's where a lot of the repeat columns come up over and over. And my insight was um, I left town around that time. Uh, Tom was still here, but a lot of other than Tom Gaffey, a lot of his informants cut, either died or just aged out. And the town had really changed dramatically from where it was in the 50s and 60s. And so he was looking back more than looking forward uh, at that point. And that's how he sort of wrote out the end of his life. And I came back to town in the, in the mid-90s, and I'd go over to see him on the porch where he sat on his uh, house next to the door, house he'd grown up in with his typewriter. And my mother and I would meet with him and stuff. And it was just like I remembered as a kid because my family would have cocktail parties and my sister and I'd be sent to bed. And out, and my father, who was a former bartender at Gilardi's, built his own uh, bar in the living room, in the dining room. So everybody was out there. Um, your, your grandfather, Jim Ages, my father's best friend, everybody's party. But the voice you could hear when I was lying in bed at night was Bill Sobranis. No, 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 like a machine gun. Just going on. You couldn't fall asleep because there's Bill out there. There'd be music and stuff and people talking, but no, 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 no. And I remember just going over there to the house and we'd have these discussions on the porch. And it was just like I was a kid. He had not changed one iota. Uh, and I still couldn't follow half of what he was saying. <laughs> and I really wondered myself if anybody really knew Bill. I mean, I, I love the guy, but I never, even when I went there alone, I never got him to kind of, and I'd talk about the past or something with him. It wasn't like talking with an old friend. It was it was, he was the firing questions at me. So you were doing what? Now when you're back and you're making notes and I'm like, whoa. And Katie said something very insightful about your grandmother, I, said, I think, having that kind of personality. I don't know if you can comment on that. Um, I'm, can you give me a clue? Because I'm, I'm not picking up on it's it. It's like a defensive mechanism? Oh, it was my mother. Your mother. My, my mother was a professional interviewer and um, she was exceptionally good at her job and she became too good at it. So she was eventually unable to communicate in any way other than turning to you and interviewing you and asking you the important uh -huh. questions. And it was very frustrating for me as her daughter to not be able to talk to her um, heart to heart anymore 
but she had lost the ability to do that. And I think that that Bill, Bill that aspect of her reminded me of that same thing in Bill, that it was surface and it was a defense mechanism. Interesting, because the questions he would ask then wouldn't be deeper probing. They would have nothing to do with him. Yeah. And, and they were so rapid fire, and there were so many of them, that you would not concentrate on the person you were talking to. You would just answer the questions. Interesting. So, and what, what, what do you think the point of those questions were? Do you think that was just his way of interacting? Do you think it was a defense mechanism? I think it was both. Yeah. I think it was it was, that was a, how he felt comfortable. It, it was a learned habit, and he had done he had done it for so long, and he was so good at it that that was what he did. When my mother could not even remember who I was because her dementia was so advanced, she was still turning the the tables to, uh, to others. Oh, tell me about you. Tell me about your life. That way, she didn't have to think. She could just ask the questions, and that may have been the same thing with Bill. And, th- and this is one of the, the truths about journalists. They flatter you oh, by do. asking you questions. Mm-hmm. And that's the way he, he learned. He was a very smart man. And he learned a little bit about something. Just enough that he could interview anybody about politics, about sports, uh, whatever it was. He doing just enough to get some questions going with you. And once he got your attention, he was on a roll. And I, I just remember coming back and visiting him on the porch, and he started firing those questions at me in my career. And he'd run little snippets in the newspaper about me and my career or something like that, but we never really had a heart-to-heart talk. And I thought that was so strange. I'd like to mention, uh, I went to the last reunion of the football Leghorns up here at Hermanson's Hall. Uh, and. Bill was there, of course. That's the photo that ran with the, my story about him. And he had written probably uh, everybody in that room of them when they played with the Leghorns in the late 40s and throughout the 50s. Uh, so he, everybody knew him through his column, and they knew him personally through interaction. And halfway through the night, Gene Benedetti got up, and he said, I have an announcement uh, Bill has lost his camera. <laughs> and the, the room erupted. You, Don Rickles never got that kind of response. The whole, everybody got it. Like, you don't know if it was a joke, or, but they all just roared. And you, everybody had to laugh. And there his camera was on the chair, of course. You know, I you think know. he got his camera back every time. He got it back. You know, he would write. There would be times in his column that he lost his camera, you know. But this, it was almost staged that because he got the response and they everybody got that joke and how do you think bill felt about that joke you know i i think he rolled with it yeah you know that, that was his his life he yeah. was the center of the joke exactly he was yep. the center of attention and everybody knew who he was that and the laughter was because they knew him and he probably were, appreciated that they weren't laughing at him at yeah. him at all yeah. uh, bill had no illusions about what people thought of that's him. right <laughs> bill bill knew what people thought of him and i don't think he really cared he knew what he was he knew what he wasn't, but more important to him was what he was doing, which is talking to people, interviewing people, talking boosting Petaluma. And he didn't have a big ego. I mean, no. he, he was, how many people can you think of who have a statue of them in their town during their lifetime? And he, when they had the testimonial dinner in October, which is his birth month, today, October 19th, would have been his 100th birthday, 
they had the testimonial dinner at the Vets building, wrist wrestling was that weekend, and they dedicated the statue that was made by the Cuban-American sculptor Rosa Estebanes at the corner of Washington and the boulevard. And Bill told me one time that uh, he was wa on his beat, he was walking by there, and he saw some people from out of town looking at the statue, and they said, uh, who is this guy? And he said, oh, I don't know, just some local guy. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I, I, you know, uh, you asked John about at the ending of, of Bill's life, and I'm not sure when it was that he fell. Uh, he fell. Yeah, that's right. Uh, he didn't break any bones, but old people can't fall. You know, he not he was what is he 82 or three or something. So I went to see him in the convalescent home. Uh, he was there a few weeks. You know, it. He hadn't broken any bones, but he was needed some recuperation. And his spirit, he was waiting to come home. He, had, he wasn't depressed. Uh, we, never, we didn't know that he wasn't going to last long after that. Uh, but he, he had the same old Bill. He was just waiting, waiting to come home again and, and resume his life. And I, I, I felt that optimism in him, visiting him at the convalescent home there. It wasn't at all a downer or negative. Uh, and uh, we thought he might last. No, nobody knew that he. Yeah. Nobody knows when they're going to die. You know? We went to see him there too, and I was so shocked because, uh, you know, my experience, my relatives, so you know, my two great grandmothers, they fell down, and then they died. You know, they got stuck in a facility, and and then they died. So I was really worried. So I went uh, prepared for the worst when I got there. And you're right. I thought, what's he doing in here? Yeah. He was Bill. Yeah. He's sitting there talking. I don't know when the goddamn nurse is coming back here. You know, That's and right. And I thought, what's he talking about? And then he was out. And I was elated. And I thought, oh, my yeah. God, this, this guy's indestructible. Yeah. He goes through what I thought was going to be this horrible crisis. I was prepared for the worst. And he was out again. Yeah. Yeah. And I really didn't expect that he, was, uh, that he wasn't going to survive much longer. I thought he was going to last. Yeah. I was so surprised. Because you're right. That's just the way he was in there. Yeah. Well, do we have any closing thoughts on Bill Sobranis? I think, uh, first of all, I just want to say thank you all so much yeah, for this. So because much. I think we really did do what we set out to do, which is like created a, just a wonderful document that talks about how much we loved him and how, yeah. why he is Mr. Petaluma. You're right. Now, let's take some pictures. Yep. <laughs> you know, take a picture of me. Jim, I don't. <laughs> take, take two. Take two. Take, 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 take a picture. Take a picture. <laughs> I wonder if if today if Bill were here today, push on the button. Would he have the smartphone and do the selfies? Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh totally. Oh my god. He was ahead of his time in that way. I mean, my god. Can you imagine him trying to operate his smartphone? Well, what would happen was his wife would be like operating it for him and taking all the photos. Right. I work this goddamn thing. You know. Hold it. Hold it. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm real proud that the Argus Courier uh, gave him the, the, the space and the, what, what they did for him today. Uh, yeah. The people at the Argus don't, didn't know Bill, the people that are there today now, but they know what, what he meant to Petaluma, what he truly meant. Yeah. And they allowed us to make our contributions completely, and even in another issue with... With Critzel, follow up on that. So, yeah, we were actually uh, had our. Uh, we've been uh, having press club meetings uh, the first Friday of the month in the back room at Volpe's, which yeah. obviously we had to put on hold um, 
during the pandemic, and we went back in there for the first time in 15 months in May. And um, I think it was David Templeton, the community editor of the Argus, he had uh, done a piece uh, about Bill in 2018, commemorating him on the 15th anniversary of his death. And he said, um, I think we, we all kind of realized, he said, hey, isn't Bill have a birthday coming up? And we kind of looked at the dates and we said, oh, Bill would be 100. So that's oh, kind of the genesis of this. And uh, were you at that press club meeting, Katie? But I think we contacted uh, you and Harlan uh, in the middle of the summer and said, you know, let's, let's do this. So, uh, you know, Tyler Sylvie, the new editor of the Argus, well, he's been there since February, and David were on board with it. And uh, John Jackson, the sports editor, who was sports editor at the Argus in the early 70s and went away and came back, uh, knew Bill personally. He did a piece on wrist yeah. wrestling, and uh, there's a piece on the Seance Harlan's column. Katie wrote a wonderful lead article last week about Bill, and there's more in the Argus this week. But that's uh, how we uh, got started on the Bill Centennial stories. It's good that somebody thought it. Maybe that was Bill coming down and saying, hey, by the way. Yeah. How, you know, how, would, how would that have sounded, Chris? If Bill you just did it. <laughs> you and Harlan do five Bill impersonations. <laughs> oh, man, you I know, used to spend so much time on Sundays talking with him. Yeah, I used to be able to do him. I, Bill came back stronger than Houdini did. Yeah. yeah. Yes, uh, he did. That's right. Yes, he did. Any, Katie, any? No. no? no I, Harlan just said it perfectly. Bill came back stronger than Houdini did. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Well, you guys, anything final to say before we sign off, or do you feel you you paid your tribute? Well, I'd like to say something uh, upon reflection, thinking about Bill a lot, just um, the work that uh, Harlan and, and Chris and Katie have done in the Argus, which has been wonderful in bringing back some mem memories. Um, there's a, a poet named Gary Snyder, whose father settled here, and his sister, Thea Lowry, did a book called Empty Shells, which was about the the chicken industry, essentially. And she had a book signing, I think, uh, maybe in 1998. And I showed up there, um, and Bill popped in, and uh, I met Gary Snyder. I'd met him before, and I had just moved back to Petaluma after being away for 25 years. And he said, and, and Gary Snyder is an old Zen guy, and he said, that's smart, because if you want to understand impermanence in this life, stay in one place. And when I think back on Bill now, he did that. And he, in my mind, he was a Zen master of sorts because he stayed in this place that he chronicled the changes of this town. Yeah. And as Chris just said, he was always optimistic. He was always upbeat. He wasn't lamenting what we've lost. He was always looking forward as the town changed and transformed. And I, I take just a lot of, I, I have a lot of pride in what he did. And I, I find a lot of courage in that. You know, and all of us who, a lot of us who live in town now came from other places and whatnot. And those of us like Tom and I who grew up here, we've seen a lot of changes and, yeah. and we lament them often, but yeah. there's something about Bill's spirit that carries on here and, and I really value it. And I think about him a lot now and how he just had that courage to look forward, always look forward. You nailed There's it. Always change. You nailed it, John. He was a Zen master. He made us proud to live in Petaluma. Exactly. Yes. Yeah. Boost Petaluma now. <laughs> That's it. Be a Petaluma booster. That's it. <laughs> Closing thoughts, Tom Gaffey. Uh, thank you all for coming tonight. Bill was was such a great friend of mine, uh, and uh, yeah, he was one of the main reasons I've loved Petaluma. Uh, through during key points in my life, he would pop in and tell me why I love this town. And uh, thank you guys for helping to keep his spirit alive and his voice alive. Yeah. 
particularly his voice, as a matter of fact. Yeah. <laughs> well, we, we all do that. I, uh, you and Harlan yeah. do a pretty good job, too. I'm we, sure Chris we, Sampson can handle it, too. We need to thank Jim and Tom for, yes, all, for hosting this. Thank you yes, very much. Yeah, we're you. so glad you guys came this tonight. This has been a pleasure. Yeah. Well, everybody out there who's listening, uh, definitely go to Petaluma360.com. A lot of articles came out last week. Uh, you have an article coming out this week. Yeah, just eight hours ago, actually, it came out. <laughs> And uh, once again, I mean, my God, thank you guys so much. Yeah, we could not so much. have done this without yep. you. Oh. And it's, a, it's his 100th birthday, and now this will live online for perhaps ever. Uh, and a next generation of people could maybe be tuned into what Bill Sobranus was doing and, and why we loved him and why he's important. You know, so I asked John, so should, we should probably do a toast to Bill, but I don't think anybody at this table really drinks. I don't. <laughs> no. <laughs> and so uh, uh, all I can say is, Bill, happy birthday. Happy 100th birthday. Yeah. We all love you. And, and uh, thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Thank you, Bill. Yeah. And thank you, everybody, for listening. Um, have a great night. Thanks, guys. Thank you. Thank you.